This is Power Athlete Radio. With your host, Denny Cage, Professor Booty, and the Luke Summers. And now, toes forward, hips locked, shoulders set, and retract those scapulas. It's time for some knowledge bombs. Thanks for tuning in to Power Athlete Radio. On a mission to be the best coach you can be, you won't want to miss this week's episode with Ron McKeefree. This SNC coach has been with top universities and pro teams, drinking in the experience of several lifetimes along the way. Coach Mack delivers insight on how to manage the team from all aspects of performance, as well as how to put together staffing that makes sense. Ron has loads of valuable information to pass along, including how to manage the sport coach SNC coach relationship, what to do when your diva athlete doesn't like to train, and how to appeal to the varying personalities that comprise a team. We're proud to feature a coach who believes in building a program based on principles versus philosophies. Where philosophies may by nature rule out other schools of thought, solid principles can be combined in any fashion to create an effective program for a given team or athlete. This is episode 161. Power Athlete Nation, what is up? You are listening to another episode of Power Athlete Radio. Uh, John and I are here in SoCal at Power Athlete HQ, and then Tex is out on the East Coast somewhere with uh, some weird dampening. Uh, it's like he's in a ballroom. It's like <laughs> I am. My, my sister's getting married this weekend, so I'm I'm on the road. Nomad. But, uh, Imagine that you on the road, You're like a dedicated dedicated member of Power Athlete Radio. Nothing can stop Tex from getting on the podcast. He's, <laughs> he's got in from Costa Rica. Uh, that one time he was in Turkish prison. He used his one call to get on the radio. Yeah. Uh, let's see. And now he's at his sister's wedding, just blowing that off. Just for a little podcast. <laughs> later, later, later. Get away. All right. But uh, enough about us. Uh, we're, we're excited to have Ron McKeefrey on. Uh, Ron's a, a collegiate strength coach, has coached uh, – through Hell and High Water, very experienced guy. He's an author, CEO, strength coach, and he has his own podcast here called the Iron Game Chalk Talk. But, uh, Ron, what's going on, man? What's up? Guys, I'm excited to be here. Thanks a lot for having me. Enjoy the show as well, and, and just uh, quite an honor. Well, give us, uh, you know, if, any, if there's somebody out there who's listening to us who doesn't know you, give us the brief kind of two to five minute uh, version, your elevator pitch, so to speak. Yeah, sure. And then, uh, and then uh, we'll get into the nitty gritty. Yeah, you know, I, I got into strength and conditioning, much like us all, right, because we're a former athlete, kind of self-made athlete, and, and uh, you got into, um, you know, through high school and college, I uh, learned that I didn't want to be a doctor, and, and, um, and, but I wanted to work with athletes, and I wanted to work with the human body, and, um, and so long story short, played college football, uh, and uh, couldn't find a GA, so I ended up getting an internship with Kansas City Royals, worked pro baseball, uh, but dream was to work pro football. So I went to Tampa Bay Buccaneers, uh, became a head strength coach at 22 years old, NFL Europe. Um, and uh, came back, it was a seasonal job. So ended up being 10 years at South Florida as a head strength coach and coaching, you know, coaching happens then, right. You know, coaching changes and, and moves and, and that type of stuff. So left there, became, uh, I was uh, with Army Special Operations with the Thor 3 program at the very beginning. 
Uh, got offered to turn down the job three times, but couldn't do it um, anymore to Tennessee. Uh, too much money and, and, and wanted to stay married, right? And, uh, you know, but again, we just didn't get enough wins and went to the Cincinnati Bengals and then here at Eastern play, uh, working for my head football coach. Uh, my senior year was a 26-year-old first-time head football coach. Uh, when I was a 21 year old senior and uh, I told him, I, I told my wife, I'd leave anywhere I was at to go work for the guys. He's that kind of guy I had that kind of impact on me. Um, and, um, you know, so I left the Cincinnati Bengals to come here as a head strength coach, been here two and a half years. Wow. Uh, where, uh, where'd you play your college football? A little school in Kansas called Ottawa university, you know, NAI school, like I said, self-made athlete, uh, but awesome experience. You know, I, I played for the Chiefs, so I'm fairly familiar with a little bit of Kansas in that area. Yeah, yeah, from Kansas City originally, so yeah, that works. Oh, nice. Where at? Uh, north of the river, North okay. Kansas City. Yeah. yeah. Nice. Yeah, I used to live in Overland Park, and then I lived down by the plaza for a little bit. Yeah, that's well, we lived in Overland Park when my wife and I when I was working for the Royals. Nice. Yeah, I remember a bunch of Royals players. You know, I mean, it was a simple, easy commute. I mean, you know, Arrowhead was right there next to the Royals deal anyway, so yeah. it was pretty easy. Yeah, nice. absolutely. And, uh, so, so you were there, and then you uh, – NFL Europe, where were you in NFL Europe? Berlin. I, uh, I was uh, – I went for the Tampa Bay Buccaneers, and, and they, that, that was when the league was just starting out uh, with NFL Europe, and they had these seasonal strength and conditioning jobs. So you go over, and, and what, what's cool about that experience is, you know, as a young strength coach, I mean, you know, so many times you, you're just going to go into work and you, you, you pound your chest and – um, you're going to bark orders and things like that, but then you go home, right? Well, in NFL Europe, it wasn't the case. I mean, you went, you went back and, you, and everybody lived together in the same hotel and everybody ate together and they traveled together. And for four months, you're on planes, trains, and automobiles, you know, the, the, the whole time. And really taught me an important lesson about developing relationships with, with athletes and, and doing it more than just, you know, do as I say instead of, you know, uh, you had to form that kind of bond and find out what their why was to push them um, to really develop those relationships that were long lasting. No, I I played with a couple guys that were NFL Europe guys, uh, Brian Waters and also a guy named Patrick Bensky. Yeah. And uh, PD was our, I remember he was our practice squad guy when I was in Philly. And then, um, you know, Brian obviously was probably, I I bet you probably one of the most successful guys to ever come out of NFL Europe. Yeah. I remember the name. I think he was a little bit after me, but, but, uh, but I definitely remember the name. Nice. And then, uh, and then the Bengals. <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah. In, uh, <laughs> we're laughing because in NFL circles, like there's, uh, there's places that as a player and as a coach, you don't always want to go, but unfortunately you got to go. And I remember my buddies that played like Bobby Williams and a lot of those guys that played at the Bengals were like, man, this is a uh, good thing you're getting paid. Because, uh, this, this is an interesting organization to play for. But I remember uh, it was Paul Alexander. Uh, yeah, was, yeah. He he came and worked me out when I was in college at Berkeley, and uh, told me he was going to draft me with their second round draft pick. And I was like, "Oh fuck, I'm about to go to the Bengals." <laughs> and, and, I'm not taking me. and I went to the Eagles, thank God. And um, I always remember thinking, like, man, I was this close. That dude was calling me, calling me, and I, I would have been stoked to go in the second round. I just remember they called and told me, and I'm like, and then nobody drafted me in second. I was like, "Is it good or bad?" Yeah. I was like, why, <laughs> "I was like, why call me? I'm fucking sitting there." The second round goes, and I'm like, "Oh, you know, pissed off." But, no question. Well, I, had a, I had a great probably. time there. Great people, really. And in, in the last couple of years, they've been real successful, you know. Um, but yeah. You know, the last three, four years, so. Yeah, I mean, uh, um, uh, uh, Hugh was uh, our offensive coordinator at Berkeley. So, I mean, yeah. you know, Tom Cable right. is a line coach. Yeah. And, uh, you know, so a lot and of those guys. Group. 
Yeah, and then also uh, uh, Jay. Um, uh, was our defensive line coach? Uh, oh yeah, uh, uh, Jay. Uh, yeah, damn. If you would have said it, I would be able to tell you. Uh, <laughs> uh, fuck yeah, it dropped, dropped me too. Uh, Jay Hayes. Yeah, Jay Hayes. Yep. Yeah, Jay, yeah. Jay Hayes. John was there too. Yeah. Yeah. yeah so now it's. Yeah, it's, uh, you know, when you start getting into, like, you know, professional sports, it's such a small deal, you know, such a so few people, especially strength coaches. I mean, Great. You know, I mean even, even the guys that were my strength coaches, and I'm sure you know the same way, uh, you really form really good relationships with guys. And even, you know, years after they leave, you're still really good friends, like Tom Canadian, and Mike Wolf and those guys that I played with. And right. heard in them. I mean, uh, I, you know, I just went down and saw Kaz down at uh, TCU, and he was our assistant. And the hilarious <laughs> I go, as a TCU, and I get you Baylor, know, Baylor, John. Oh, I'm sorry, at Baylor. And he uh, he brings me in and is like, man, when I was a fucking no-nothing, piece-of-shit strength coach making no money, this guy right here would take me up to dinner and buy me dinner because we would go out and I'd bet, Cass, come on, man, I, I feel bad for you. You ain't got no money, dude. You gotta, you're making <laughs> He's kind of like, he's like, oh, man, I, I can't spend this per diem. So, no, it was good. It, it's always great to see guys really go on. And then uh, I think the kid who was our assistant at, at Kansas City, Brent, went on, and now he's the head strength coach for the Vikings which is even more hilarious. Um, yeah, I don't know. Yeah, I mean, it just it, – it, it blows – it makes me feel old because I, I feel we're about the same. <laughs> doesn't age. that suck? Yeah, doesn't yeah. that suck? <laughs> yeah, all of a sudden you're like, wait a minute, that guy was our fucking, like, intern, and now he's a head strength coach, and you're like, God damn, I feel old. So <laughs> – I hear you, man. So how uh, – was it uh, – I always kind of wonder a little bit, especially for strength coaches, like, you know, having coached on the biggest stage, you know, something like NFL Europe, you go in and then you work with NFL teams and you're working with NFL players – and now all of a sudden you're back in a college coaching environment, uh, is the experience more rich in that, you know, you're not dealing with, like I, I always think dealing with NFL players, it's uh, motivation is always real different. Like, do you want to make your paycheck? Do you want to be a starter? Do you want to be out of here? Like, you know, you, you have the fine system where if a guy, guy doesn't show, hey, it's not my fault you didn't show, you're going to get fined your money. You don't make yeah. weight, you get fines. I mean, the NFL is very, you know, if you can balance a spreadsheet, you can fucking work in the NFL. Whereas in college, it's completely different. You have a kid come in and he's not making work out because he's in a fight with his girlfriend, got a bad grade. I just wonder if the experience is much more rich in college. Yeah, you know, I, I get asked this question quite a bit just because I've gone back and forth throughout my entire career. I, I think, um, you know, what I like to tell people, I've enjoyed both. I enjoy both for different reasons. Uh, I enjoy the NFL uh, because I think you're dealing with a more informed consumer, right? You got somebody that has pretty good understanding. They've trained at least somewhere. They've had success. Um, they usually know their body a little bit better and they want to, um, and, and they want to stay in the league for as long as their motivations are different, right? They're, they're trying to make money for, uh, their family and, and, and they, they understand there's a ticking clock. Um, and so the problem with that though, sometimes is, as you know, you know, the guys, you know, because they have an understanding of those types of things, they also have an understanding of what they think they want to do for training and which doesn't always line up with maybe what you want to do philosophy, you know, philosophy wise or, or as an organization. And so the challenge as a strength coach then is you, you have to really uh, challenge yourself to be creative and to almost, you know, trick them into doing what you want them to, to, to have done and, uh, and find lots of solutions. So the creativity of that, I, I really enjoy, you know, and, and obviously you're dealing with the best of the best, right? You're dealing with the lead athletes. In college, it's completely different. Sometimes you're, you're dealing with guys that can't walk and chew gum at the same time. Um, but you're, but you also have a much more profound, uh, impact on their life, you know, where every aspect of, of what they do, you're the guy that they come to, you're the confidant because you're the guy that they see more than anybody, 
you know, and so decisions that are being made in their life, um, you know, all run through you in a lot of ways, but that's also time consuming, you know, in the NFL, you, you, you know, at five o'clock, everybody's out the, out the building. And if somebody gets arrested, well, it, it is what it is, right? Five o'clock, you know, you're still in the building in college and, and at eight o'clock when somebody gets arrested, you're getting the phone call and you're going to, t- you know, you're going to drive that kid and you're going through the whole counseling process and the whole deal. And so I enjoy the college aspect because you, you have that opportunity in the NFL, you, you rattled off how many strength coaches you had, you know, in, in a short amount of time, in a short amount of time, you know, everybody has to keep everybody at a kind of an arm's length, you know, because you don't know, I mean, either you or them might be gone within a week. Um, so the relationship building, sometimes you have the opportunity if you're with somebody for quite some time to form that type of relationship. But for the most part, everybody's a little standoffish in college. You're going to have four years, typically five years to, to really develop that type of relationship. And uh, I mean, I still have guys that I coached 20 years ago that are, you know, that call me and, and still ask for that type of advice in their life, you know? And so that's, that's pretty impactful as a coach. Yeah, I mean, uh, um, Todd Rice was my strength coach. Yeah, uh, Eric, yeah, Eric Holm uh, was there with Gilby when I first came in, and then um, Todd Rice came in, and so we had done just like basically, uh, you know, kind of a powerlifting, kind of you know more standard strength conditioning, and then Rice comes in and we do. I mean, we were training for the you know snatch clean and jerk on the Olympics. I mean, it was all you know Charlie Francis sprint and snatch clean and jerk, and uh, um, you know, coming from a powerlifting background, it was extremely hard, especially, you know, as my third year. Technically, yeah. Oh, yeah. I mean, we come in and it's like, you know, we're three, almost three months just basically snatch, clean, and jerk with a bar, just learning to do it. I mean, uh, I remember day one, you know, I had squatted like 6'10 when I was 19. And I came in and um, tore my ACL or tore my ACL that next year. And then I was coming back from rehab. And Dude, day one, I like go to lift weights. He's like, "No, we're just gonna do some uh, some basic testing." And I remember he uh, just had me hold a you know iso hold uh, like an iso bridge, like a GHD off of the bench because we didn't have any GHD machines. Right. And I could hold it for like five seconds, and I remember him being like, "Until you can hold this for a minute, I'm not even gonna let you squat." And I didn't back squat for the next two years. I only front squatted, and I ended up like front squatting 500 for a triple. Yeah, wow. it was so much more explosive, and you know, I mean, it, it was it was one of those things where I thought I was, you know, uh, a starter. I played well, you know, I was, you know, in this position to be able to go in and a strength coach comes in and basically proves to me how fucking worthless I was. Right. There was a lot of, you know, at least for me, a lot of fist fight in that, but uh, you know, you take a step back and you look and you're like, fuck, thank God he was the right person at the right time. And I think that's where, especially in college is so meaningful because, you know, by the time I got to the NFL, I was already kind of established in this. And then you meet guys like I went into Philly and it was a straight up hammer strength. Yeah. Uh, you know, a snatch clean and jerk uh, Ole background. Yeah. And all of a sudden, I got Mike Wolf and these dudes that are Penn State guys. Right. I mean, they got the machines and the cards. And I remember asking them after, like, the second day, like, can I do the circuit again? Yeah. And, uh, they, <laughs> if you do the circuit, you do it real well, we'll lift your free weights after. And then we ended up making a deal. And, you know, that was, I think, how it is. But, you know, in college, um, the impact of a college strength conditioning coach is so important because it's true. I mean, like – you spend the majority of your time with your strength coach. I mean, your you know, Dawn Patrol type workouts are up at five thirty to be to, to be there by six, and we're there. We come in, we stretch, we do everything. I mean, we I I had a more of a relationship with uh, with Todd Rice than I had with any other coach. And, right. Uh, you know, and then you get to the NFL, and the strength coach is kind of an interesting uh, position, more so. And you you know this, it's like you're kind of 
like on the player side, but you're also the guy that like, I, I remember sitting in a, uh, um, I remember one of the strength coaches came down and they were, had just come down for the meeting and he came down and they had told the strength coach like different things about the players to be able to like filter through to them. Right. So he, yeah. He's at me and he's like telling me, he's like, well, the coaches want this and this and I got to be able to try to tell this guy. And I was like, fucking let me tell him. Yeah. Yeah. No question. In there and be like, don't worry about it. I'll fucking tell him. And uh, you know, that relationship, but yeah, I mean, I, um, it, it's pretty, you know, uh, uh, commendable. And, and actually I was super impressed the fact that you went from the NFL and back to college because a lot of guys, once they get to the NFL, they never want to fucking leave. And yeah, yeah, the family aspect is hard, you know, because it's, I mean, at five o'clock, you're out of the building, you get to focus on your family. And that's, I mean, a guy's 20 years in the profession, that's ultimately what, you know, what's, what's important to you typically. And, and it's tough, but, um, but I love it. I mean, I love, I love all of it and, and really enjoy it. And, you know, the, the challenge uh, in the NFL is that you, you end up becoming a, a jack of all trades. I mean, as in NFL Europe, I was the turt. I was the guy that went and got guys to go get cut. You know, that was no, that's not a fun job. <laughs> you know? No, I, I did. I, uh, you, you know, what's hilarious about that is uh, there were some people that I know that love that job. <laughs> yeah, that's I, a miserable job. Oh, well, but I mean, I, I remember seeing, uh, um, I mean, I can't, I, I forgot what team it was at, but uh, I mean, there were people that loved that job. That was their deal. They were all about it, but you know, and then, you know, and then it was always like when I was in Philly, it was always the uh, the the poor day one intern. That's <laughs> when you watch the glasses and walking around. Yeah, you're like, uh. <laughs> but uh, it, yeah, I mean, it, 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 it's yeah, no. And, and so for you guys are, are listening, the, they call him the Turk, which is the guy like uh, when you come in on final cuts, um, they pair down. I mean, what do we start with like 75, 80 guys, and they got to pair down to 65, and then they got to be at 53, and then they got to be at what like or 58, then it's 53. And so they have to cut down and they don't like tell you after practice, you show up in the morning and there's a little dude with a list standing there and he walks over and taps the guy on the shoulder and says, Hey, uh, uh, the, uh, general manager needs to see you in his office. Can you bring your playbook? And, uh, when I, and that, that was most teams, there was my first year in Philly, they came around and knocked on doors at yeah. night and cut dudes. So they weren't there in the morning. So we're like laying there in bed and we hear the dude walking by, knocking on doors. Hey, the coach needs to see with your playbook. And we were <laughs> in there with like the covers on of our faces being like, oh, that's not a yeah, I don't fucking know better. And so, uh, yeah, that's the Turk, which is a terrible job. But uh, um, I'll tell you a quick story, if you, if you, let, if you let me. We, at NFL Europe, we had uh, – I was going around, I was getting players and, and uh, doing exactly what you just said, knocking on doors and everybody's freaking, you know, they, nobody wants to answer the damn door. And then there's two guys in a room, so they don't, you don't know who you're coming to get, right? So I go to one room and and player answers the door and it's not him. And I'm like, hey, I got to talk to the other guy. And the guy just starts going ape shit and starts flipping mattresses and coming over and, and rips the door off the hinges. I'm on the third – it's one of those hotels that's got – a narrow balcony, you know, it's a narrow hallway and then it's a balcony over into the deal. And he's ripping the door off and he's, you know, he's a freaking offensive lineman. So he's about twice my size at the time. And I'm, I, you know, I had to really evaluate whether or not I was going to keep doing that job. You're like, <laughs> I'll be back later. That's when right. you calm down. Coach is supposed to say uh, congratulations. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Do you know, um, uh, when you can't like, um, I mean, I'm uh, like, like you made a great point about being flexible and really almost trying to trick guys a little bit. And I, um, I, I never really saw that as much as when I went to play for the Patriots and I show up and I meet my white Wysick 
And uh, he had every single implement you could ever imagine to hit whatever body part you wanted to do from like leg press to a hack squat to a break, you know, like a million different things. And I remember he was like showing me, taking me on the tour. And I, uh, he had a really, really nice set of Alico plates and really nice Alico bars and whatever. And I was like, well, what about that over there? And he's like, what, the squat rack with the plate and the bar? And I was like, yeah. <laughs> he was like, well, you could use that too if you wanted. And I was like, can I? Please, please like, use that. Please. <laughs> he was like, yeah. And so I, I go over and I remember I like pull the Alico out. It's like literally it was so fresh that it didn't even have like anybody's ever seen like a um, used Alico bar. It has a lot of skin on it because yeah. they're used rough. This thing was perfect. Like not a neural on it. Nobody ever put it in the rack. So I like put it in there. I take the like the, the plate and I go and I blow the top <laughs> off. I start putting them on. I put my shoes on. And as soon as I started squatting, all of a sudden I see YC's head stick out and he like looked and then he went back in. I figured he was going back in his office and he literally shot out like somebody had him on a run. <laughs> he was so excited that somebody was going to back squat. I, I just, I actually just went down and saw Mike not, about a month ago and, and uh, they're building a brand new place. And he was talking about that very thing. Actually. It's funny to say that. <laughs> yeah. He was like, man, he goes, uh, you know, it, it just, and then the other one was, uh, um, I was working up on the bench and uh, put, went to go put four or five on and like the whole place stopped. Oh yeah, and he was like, "Well, what are you doing?" I'm like, "Well, I'm gonna I'm work on my bench. I got to work up to my fives. And he's like, "Well, we can't uh, have you put any more than four or five on the bar unless we have three spotters, and you have to do it to a two board." <laughs> so I literally had to do uh, three spotters, one sides, and a three board or a two board. And I was like, I, "This is still warm up weight. Like, I got a lot more to do out of this." And he was like, "No, we can't go. But anybody go four plates without a two board." And I remember. Yeah to myself how many things has this dude i mean because he's been a strength coach i mean for fucking since you know i'm pretty sure he put moses his <laughs> and, um, uh, but like you know that's like you know and, and i think for people listening to this podcast uh these experiences like as a strength coach you have in your mind like hey this is my philosophy and i'm sure you could sit down and literally put a whiteboard up and you could tell me exactly you know, what you want to do, what your philosophy, what you're trying to do here. And then you get into a situation where a dude's like, well, I can't squat. Right. You know, and it's like, well, I know what I want to do. So now I have to be flexible. And I always thought that like, you know, that was the the crux of being a college or a professional strength coach. Whereas in college, you can bring a kid in and you're like, you know, you're a freshman. I don't really need you to play for another couple of years. Right. So like, like that development period. So I'd just be interested to hear like, you know, uh, how you kind of temper those two between the idea where, hey, I, I, I'm going to have this kid for five years. He's not going anywhere. I'm going to build him and create him opposed from like, this dude might be here a week. He might be here 10 years. And at the end of the day, my job is to not hurt him. So like, how do you kind of balance those? Yeah. You know, I, I think um, what, you know, when I speak, one of the things that I'll always say is that I'm, I'm a principle-based strength coach, not a philosophy-based strength coach. Because I think the minute that you start to identify yourself with just a philosophy, you, you pigeonhole yourself to the benefits that other, that other philosophies bring to the table. You know, so, for example, CrossFit, I mean, a lot of strength coaches out there, you guys know as well as I do, that mm-hmm. some strength coaches, it's like you say the word CrossFit and they, they, they shut down completely. You know, or you say, the, or you say, you know, you say high-intensity to an Olympic lifter and it's, they shut it down completely. But you know, as well, you know, you know, by going through some of those workouts, there's some times you get your ass kicked in those high intensity workouts and vice versa. Sometimes it could have been a lot harder or, or you know, sometimes that, that workout under the, the Olympic bar wasn't nearly what it could have been. 
you, know, uh, you you know this as well as anybody. Um, uh, you know, we did the Nebraska circuits when I was in, when I was in college. Todd Rice had us do those the middle yeah. division circuits. Yeah. And when I was uh, you know in high school. Anybody that's ever played high school football or done any of that stuff knows what metabolic conditioning is. And so when I first saw CrossFit, I was like, oh, yeah. yeah, I know. It all we came did, back uh, around, right? <laughs> yeah, we, we did mat drills. I mean, I, I, you know, all of that stuff. I mean, the, I, I actually worked the Nebraska circuits into our uh, uh, into CrossFit training on our, uh, you know, on, on the site we use for CrossFit. And people were like, oh, my God, this is the best CrossFit workouts. And I'm like, dude, you were like. <laughs> <laughs> if you only did. You know, so, uh, you know, and that's where we really get into this idea of like people get so stuck in this dogma, like you're talking about philosophies, like this is the camp I'm in. And I'm like, dude, at the end of the day, like all of these camps are one camp. And uh, and I'm sure, you know, at certain points of the year, you periodize and do, you know, more conditioning. The guys come back from from, uh, winter break and haven't done shit. You know, doing some basic metabolic conditioning before they get ready to do strength training is just smart strength coaching. No question. You know, I I think – you know, what, you know, the principles that I, I, like, I lay out, you know, the number one is obviously overload. I mean, you and I can have a conversation um, about overload all day long. I mean, about the best ways to reach that. I, we can go talk to Louis Simmons. We can talk to Kelly Sturette. We can talk to Mike Boyle. We can talk to whoever you want to talk to about that. And we can all have a, a common ground in the conversation because for there to be a neuromuscular adaptation, there has to be overload. It's, it's, it's science. It's, it's proven. You can't, can't dispute that. Well, it's stress. So, yeah, yeah, you, yeah, I mean, you, it's evolution, it's stress. I mean, it's, it's, uh, you know, but then, you know, you talk about progressive overload with a West side guy and, you know, they will fight you tooth and nail, but we know that, you know, progressive overload with like in a basic linear progression with an amateur, like an un, unadapted nervous system is the single fastest way to get strong. Right. And I, I argue with Louis Simmons about this and Louis's like, no, 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 it's West side. And I'm like, well, what about a beginner? Well, I've never trained beginner. <laughs> and then he was trying to tell me about Dave Hoff, but Dave Hoff squatted 800 pounds when he was like 16 years old when he first walked in. And I'm like, never taken a kid that's had 165 pounds on his back and looked like he was shaking like a leaf on a tree to squat a couple reps. And Louis right. was like, no, you, you, know, you can't come to West Side unless you're fucking 1,000 pounds squatter. Right. So, like, that's, you know, like, that's the problem. And I think um, it's kind of like the, uh, uh, you know, the difference between like a archer and a warrior, right? A war, like, you know, you, you look at it, you're like, how many, t- you know, I'll be able to fight with whatever weapon you need, whatever one needs uh, is right. most in that situation. Whereas the archer has just one where, hey, I'm going to just pinpoint actually just shoot this arrow. And, uh, you know, and that was always a big thing I talked about with strength coaches. I'm like, you know, what do you want to be? Do you want to be a warrior that just goes in and fights? Because a warrior right. doesn't reference any, any equipment. But the archer is going to stand over there and just try to pick you off and, uh, um, you know, and then the other two is having enough background in science and enough people to be able to intelligently discuss any type of thing, which, you know, uh, I'm sure you can fucking turn our heads on that. So, no, that's the um, I, I do like the idea of principles more than philosophies. Yeah, you know, and that's and, that, and so to get back to your original question, I mean, with, with your with your freshman athlete that you need to develop. I mean, it's, it's a simple deal. Do you know, let's get under the bar and do it right. You know, you, it's more of a, a, a yours. They will yield quite a bit because obviously you know more and you can demonstrate that quickly. And because you've hopefully established a culture that, you know, it's just one of those deals that you're not going to not do it. Um, however, as you progress through that, it, you know, that's where I think so many coaches, you know, they, they, they work so hard to become great technicians and they want to learn all these drills, all these, all these methods, you know, these methods, um, but they don't develop the other two parts of the, of, of what makes a great coach, which to me is, is being a great manager and bring, and becoming an entrepreneur. 
being a great manager that you have to manage time, people and resources, being an entrepreneur and that you have to be forward thinking and kind of constantly challenging your ideals. And so um, as you progress through your, as you progress through the profession or you progress through uh, uh, levels of mastery uh, in, in your athletes, you have to get on the far right end of that spectrum to where you're able to, to walk in and have a conversation with a guy like yourself that, that knows training, that knows how strong they are, that understands the difference between being a, a two board press and, 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 you know, going to what they know as no being 85% or 95% versus the guy that, you know, maybe, you know, caught, you know, 50 touchdowns, you know, but they couldn't point the direction of the weight room at, at whatever SEC school, SEC school you want to, you want to say, you know, and, and you're going to, you're going to get both, you know, uh, in the NFL and, and you have to, uh, and you have to work with both uh, because they're both playing on Sunday. Sure. Ron, this is a, you know, th- this is getting into some of the dialogue that you cover in your book, the CEO strength coach. Talk about the, the inspiration behind, you know, why did you want to get this stuff on paper and push this stuff out there? Yeah. You know, uh, first of all, I never thought I'd write a book. I can tell you that much. Uh, it wasn't something that I, I, I thought that would be, uh, in my wheelhouse, but, um, but I wanted to write the book that I felt like I, you know, that I wanted, uh, that I felt like I needed when I was getting into the profession. And, um, you know, and, and through my years uh, of the profession, I mean, it's, it's exactly what I was saying earlier. The technician part of it, you know, I lived in, a, in the strength and conditioning bubble. And in the strength and conditioning bubble, you know, uh, it's all about sets and reps and exercises and, um, you know, and finding the coolest drills and, and putting them out there. But once you really get into the profession, you understand, once you become a head strength coach, you understand that, um, it's more than that. It's, you know, you can have the best program on paper, but unless you get people to do it, believe in it, create a culture in which uh, people will thrive in, it's not going to happen, you know? And, and, and so managing that time, people and resources is huge. And then, you know, through going through the coaching profession, South Florida, we, you know, we went through a coaching change. We went from Skip Holtz or uh, from Jim Levitt who started the program to Skip Holtz, uh, son of a legendary coach. And, um, you know, I, I just wasn't, uh, I went from being, uh, the head strength coach and, and strength coach of the year and six bowl games and, and X number of, of professional athletes trained to where my job was being in jeopardy now because of a coaching change at the top, you know? And so I, I felt like it was something that needed to get out there, um, in terms of, of other strength coaches that were living in that bubble to realize that there's more to it than just those sets reps. So, Ron, I, uh, just in, in reading your book, I found a lot of kind of uh, parallel, parallels and lessons that I just picked up along the way in the strength coach journey. And one of the most valuable ones, it was only a couple paragraphs that led into your uh, great quote, John, you like this, philosophies are like PhDs, base your program on principles. Uh, but that, that lesson that you learned at, with Tampa Bay uh, during your internship, I believe, um, with uh, the HIP program and Marcus Sonovic, program you were defending the program a Virginia strength coach walked in and it was kind of uh poo-pooing it and took a stand for it but then not really understanding the hows and whys and the principles and he walked in and and uh, Mark sat you down and gave you a little back and forth so I've had to say what year were you at Tampa uh, 99 uh that was that that year was 99 and and the, the story you know the story goes um I, I trained with Istvan Javorik. I was a, I was a competitive Olympic lifter. Um, 
he was a, a phenomenal coach that lived down the street. And, and so I wanted to, uh, when I got to the Tampa Bay Buccaneers, it was a completely high intensity program, you know? And so I, I went to the two extremes, right? Olympic lifting, completely Romanian coach, trained Dragomir, the whole deal to essentially one set to failure or we had multiple set to failure protocols. Sounds but like I, my journey. Sounds yeah. like from Todd Rice to Mike Wolf. So I, I'm, yeah, I'm starting to relate. I, yeah, no, I totally relate to this. Yeah, you know, and so, you know, I jump in and I'm a young coach and this is a team that that, that year we won the NFC South and, um, you know, good, you know, good strength coach, well-respected and the whole deal. And so I bought in, I bought a hook, line and sinker. I, I completely abandoned, you know, all my Olympic lifting and multiple set protocols and, and went the, the other way. And we had a coach that came, we did, we would, we would invite coaches in for training camp. And I don't know if you guys did the assembly line workouts at Philly with Mike and and Canavy, but guys would be at each station. You'd pass the clipboard, right? We had uh, three, so there were three. There were three rows, and it, it, yeah. there was a one, a two, and a three on the ground. And uh, you walked in, and on the whiteboard, it was literally like one, two, or three. And you would walk in, and the coach would. There you, know, yep, there you go. Here it is, and be like, "Go three, two, one." And I remember, uh, like, being like. Why aren't we going to warm up? And they were like, well, no, you'll warm up somewhere in the middle. And I'm like, this is like, <laughs> but here's the interesting thing. And, and you know, this, uh, the single greatest performance gains, both in strength and diet and everything is when you do 180 degrees of what you've done. I mean, that's exactly you know, right. In, 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 in like diet stuff. I mean, that's why like people, you know, eat one diet and all of a sudden they do, you know, they flip flop and then they get these phenomenal gains or you go from, you know, straight up Olympic lifting. So ironically, um, having done just a pure, you know, multi-set, you know, holy snatch screen injury program. And then all of a sudden going to uh, that high intensity program, I got really fucking strong. Yeah. Like it was probably big. It, yeah. And, and dude, I, I got like, uh, you know, I, I was probably about 305, 308. And all of a sudden by the end of that year, uh, like mid off season, I was like 326. Yeah. So I, I put on a legitimate, like 20 pounds of muscle and it was the weirdest thing. And, uh, I remember being like, shit, man, this, this high intensity stuff works. Yeah. Uh, and then all of a sudden we went to mini camp. I, you know, I, I, I line up a tackle and I go take a set. And I remember I set back and the defensive end ran around me. Like I was like a big planet. He was a little moon. <laughs> and I remember being like, like I, there was like inertia <laughs> holding me to the ground. And I had this like fucking panic epiphany that I had gotten too big and I lost all my speed. And I remember uh, as soon as we got done, I went back home. I was living in Tampa. I used to live in Clearwater. Oh, and, yeah. Yeah. So, yeah I, I lived right in Safety Harbor, right on the other side of the causeway. Yeah, sure. And, uh, I remember being like, I got to lose this fucking weight. And uh, I ended up uh, uh, like going every night and, dude, I, like, I would run at one of the local high schools and I went to the gym and I trained and I did everything. And I was like eating like two salads a day and some chicken and ended up showing up at like 306. And then I went in and, and was fine. But like, dude, yeah. It really worked, and I realized that, um, you know, because coming from my background, like, you know, where we were, like, there was this kind of, you know, negativity almost towards uh, kind of powerlifting, bodybuilding. I mean, I, I benched 500, and I'd done West Side stuff, but, I mean, Todd Rice was so big in this kind of right. you know, snatch clean jerk thing, you know, like, fuck bench press, if you can't press this weight over your head, you know, you know all, all when do you, of when, when do you bench press when you're, uh, you're on your back, right? That's the, yeah. the line. Yeah. Oh, yeah. You only, yeah, you only use the bench press when you get pancaked. Yeah. You know? Yeah. And, uh, you know, like, but what can you jerk? What can you get hip drive? And so, I mean, all of that stuff. And uh, so, like, I had kind of built up this little bit of, like, 
stigmatism or kind of anti bodybuilding stuff. And then all of a sudden we go into this Mike Metzner hits thing. And all of a sudden, dude, I'm like, like blew up. And I was like, Holy shit. And I remember, um, hitting up, uh, one of my, you know, like the, the old power lifter that trained me in high school. And he made that same comment to me. He goes, you know, he goes, he goes, Metzner stuff worked, but he goes, what Metzner didn't tell you is he came from a completely different background. So he, you know, people think he built his physique that way, but his training looked different. He used to periodize through and do this at different points. Right. And, uh, he, and that's what old man Zangus told me. He goes, dude, he goes, the best gains is when people do, when, when they flip the script, they do completely different. So I'm sure right. like you, you jump in and you see it and you're like, shit, this stuff works. That's exactly right. I mean, I, I saw those kinds of results and I'm sitting here going, holy cow. So I've drunk, you know, drank the Kool-Aid and, and long story short, there's this coach that from Virginia that was, was, bad math in the program the whole time because he came from an Olympic lifting program and just said this stuff doesn't work and this that, and the other and so we got on a little verbal deal and, and Mark brought us in the office and you know he basically just destroyed this guy with the science um you know I had this guy tongue twisted pissed off walked out out you know and so I'm back in the I'm back in the corner I'm fist post you know fist pumping the air like man we got him you know and really it was embarrassment on my part because I couldn't I couldn't defend myself right and then he sat me down, and this was real important in my, in my career. He sat me down. And he's like, okay, I just gave you the argument. Now you be me, and I'm going to be him. And he turned around, and he completely ripped me from an Olympic lifting periodization background as well with the science. And so, you know, the science, I mean, you can find what you want in the science, right, if you're looking hard enough. And uh, it taught me an important lesson that all these things are aspects of, of development. You know, and so when you're, when you're just getting in the league, you probably needed to put on a little size. You probably needed to bulk, you know, bulk up and, and get a little bit stronger. And, and, um, and so that would have been a great program early on. But as you, as you pro- progress through uh, speed and agility and, and, and power became more of a focus for you. And, and it's, your traditional, it's your traditional linear periodization model or your underlying periodization model. It's just a different aspects. You, you, you change your program to fit the needs of, you as an athlete, you as an individual, you depended upon your injury history and, 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 and the specifics to uh, what you're trying to improve upon. And, and I think that was a, a huge pivotal moment in my career as far as opening me up to where all things worked. It's just at what expense or what cost um, to your body and, and what, you know, and how efficient is it uh, in the long run? I think, I just think that that revelation is very important and many coaches, especially our listeners need to understand that sooner rather than later. And you can't attack any coach. You can't attack any program, ask the wise, understand it. And that'll put you in a better position to kind of springboard. And then this is in the book where you kind of walk into all of your principles. So it's a great lead in and just something I, I've kind of, I valued in reading that book. No, I appreciate that. Well, I mean, as a strength coach, you should have had tried everything. And uh, I'm, I'm always nervous when I meet people that are just steeped in one thing. I'm like, dude, you have to have tried everything. Even if you decide you don't like it, at least you can talk intelligently about it. Uh, but this, this is one problem that I've kind of witnessed in S&C is that you go intern at one program and then you get the either the grad assistant or the assistantship at that program and eventually work your way to head at that program. So you're only exposed to one system and that's all you know. Or you Instead go work for somebody that's left that program to go run the same program somewhere else. Yeah. <laughs> you, know, yeah, uh, yeah. you know what they're like, what's pretty interesting about that is, uh, you know, uh, when I played in Philly, uh, Mike Wolf and Tommy Kennedy were, you know, Penn state guys, which is where the, the, the hit stuff was invented. 
and or and they were Michigan guys, which is you know the other birthplace of Pitt. Um, and then what was amazing was when uh, when I got there and the training we started doing, and I started getting Canadian to help me because he was the assistant and his assistant strength coach. Your job is to like have to deal with catch all. You were really <laughs> fucking over eager. So like so the head, the head guy's like, I'm not dealing with this fucking well-born guy who wants to train three times a day. So Canadian, so Canadian, and I became boys, and the training that we did that that uh, we ended up created, which is actually ironically, we still program. I, and it's known as something called Jack Street because Philly was on Broad Street, uh, <laughs> facility was. So we used to joke that Friday was Jack Street day. And so then I got yeah. the program based around this idea, but it was straight up like old school bodybuilding. It was, uh, you know, like, uh, and so we still do a lot of it, but Tommy ended up when he left and went to Minnesota, still kept a lot of those principles and things we developed. And I remember when he was on our podcast talking about it, he goes, honestly, I was a hit guy. And then I saw what you guys were doing and it really helped me kind of evolve past what I was. And I think as a strength coach, um, you know, I'm sure you've had guys come in and you're like, Hey, this is what I do. And the guy's like, Hey, this is what I do. And you're like, well, show me. And all of a sudden the guy does pretty good. And you're like, shit, we might need to learn something about this. And you know, that's one of the first questions I ask. I, I ask, you know, uh, even in our, with our high school guys, I'm like, give me, give me the hardest thing you've ever done. Tell me the, tell me the hardest workout you've ever done. Describe it into the hardest drill, you know, and sometimes you come up with some pretty cool stuff that you're like, you know what, that's, you know, that fits here. And I think that's an important distinction with um you know and why you know i always go back to those principles whenever i evaluate a program that's exactly what i do is i go and i look at that and i'm like okay now how can i overload it how can i progress it how's it where does it fit in my balance development can i periodize it can i can i supervise it you know uh can i evaluate it you know and, and if i can do those things then i can find a place for it in my program you know and and, and so just like you know the nfl combine time each year you know, there's some cool stuff out there, right? There's some really cool things that people are doing yeah. that, that are awesome displays of athleticism. But I go back, I don't know if you remember, uh, you know, Adam Archuleta, you know, when he was coming out, he, he would throw, you know, you'd catch 20, 225 and throw it. And it's like. That's um, uh, the guy down in Arizona. I had a pretty long talk with him and I cannot remember his name for the life of me. Yeah, I can't either. Uh, um, fuck. Uh, I, yeah, I, I literally talked to the guy on the phone, emailed back and forth with them. Because uh, he uses the Omega Wave, yeah. uh, which is a, a, a high form of EMS. So we use a lot of EMS stuff, you know, uh, me coming yeah. from a Charlie Francis background. We yep. use a ton of EMS uh, with, uh, you know, this new company we've been working with, PowerDot. And then before that, we were working with another one with Compex. And um, so when I went down that road, I'm really looking at the idea of, uh, you know, force concentric, uh, you know, movement patterns with, you know, using EMS. So I hit that guy up and he started talking to me about their reactive stuff mm -hmm. and the amount of implements that that crazy motherfucker had to build to be able to safely drop 225 from fucking 10 feet off the ground and have fucking Archuleta catch it. Yeah. And I remember talking with him a little bit about like he would uh, like program training and then would have to program that day. The e I mean, it was so fucking involved. And I remember asking the guy and I was like, you know, uh, I understand, like, I'm, I'm, I'm not doubting it works. And, like, you know, we saw with Archuleta that it did work. But I'm just wondering about what the lead-in is. Like, like, how long did it take to start? And he trained at Archuleta since high school. Right. So, yeah, and, and how much of that was genetic potential as well and, and, and the whole deal. I mean. Uh, performance enhancing. I mean, dude, I, yeah, I was like. Yeah, you never know. As I'm talking with the guy, I'm, like, sitting there listening to it. And I was like, you know, uh, 
The one thing the NFL taught me is I don't believe in the boogeyman, and I don't believe in Superman, and I sure as hell don't believe in Captain America. <laughs> because, uh, I used to, and you, you know this, every year they'd be like, oh, this fucking rookie is going to come in, and he's going to fucking own the world. And I would go out there and literally be like, oh, shit, this kid's, he, he, he just, he's Superman, he forgot his cape. Yeah, that's right. Come out and just bury this motherfucker. Yeah, you know, they, I mean, so it, like that's the one thing. And I uh, like whenever I hear somebody that you know starts getting these Superman, I'm like, I don't buy Superman. But right. listening to this guy's training and him talking about how they did it and this, and I'm like, dude, uh, how many people? One, how many eggs have you broken? Because that, right. that's another big thing. You can have the best program in the world, but if it like you know becomes the Lord of the Rings, where you where only one guy can fucking do it, and you shatter millions of others he's only got to miss one time right yeah. he's only got to miss that bar one time and, and it changes his, his whole career and but i would say this and that you would probably agree with me in that conversation you probably took one thing out of there didn't you you probably took something out of that conversation that was was useful for your for your programming and your and your deal and i think that's where you know that's what's so great about where we're at as a profession right now i think and talking to guys like yourself and and others is that yeah, we're going to all walk away from this with one thing that's going to make our program better, you know, and, and where it used to be when you and I first got in, you first got in, it was like the high intensity guys didn't talk, you know, those Penn State, Michigan guys, they didn't talk to the Nebraska guys. It was like, like, like if they saw each other at a barbecue, they're probably going to fight. You know, it was it was like straight up West Side Story. They're out there like missing <laughs> yeah. fingers and shit. Yeah, that's right. uh, the one thing, though, that, that was really interesting in that guy's, you know, it, there was a lot of um, folklore. There was a lot of like, sci uh, I, you know, it sounded a lot like Mork and Mindy with a lot of some of that stuff. But uh, I mean, it was pretty fucking interesting. But the one thing that I really took away and something that um, we have seen deficient in the majority of programs is the idea that you build stability with isometric. Uh, yeah. And, you know, people forget there's three muscle contractions, eccentric, concentric, and isometric. And he really talked about uh, being able to do, you know, accentuated, like prolonged isometric contractions against, you know, using EMS, which is forcing a concentric movement and then actually doing some form of accentuated negatives, right. and, you know, like accentuated negatives, fatiguing neuromuscular pathways, you know, uh, you know, rate coding and how to increase it had some really interesting stuff that how he was doing it, uh, which actually played into, uh, Raphael's stuff where, you know, if you know, Rafael Ruiz, uh, yep. And, uh, we used to work together. Oh yeah, yeah, I, dude, yeah. So uh, Ruiz trained me my majority of my NFL career when I lived down in Tampa. I was gonna say, yeah, you over at University of Tampa with him yeah. over there. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, Ruiz, my guy. And uh, uh, so it was interesting. Like Roth talked about all that, and we did so much of these things. And then when I jumped on with this guy, and he started kind of talking about actually using the EMS with a lot of these different things, I was like, I mean, it's it's super next wave. And then I was like, great. Uh, how much are mega wave? It's like ten thousand dollars a month. That's right, dude. I was like, I was like, I, I, like a lot of these things are great, but like at the end of the day, like if you're working with like the average consumer, most people don't have the disposable income to spend 120 grand a year on a fucking lease for a machine. Right. Uh, you know, and, and the guy also told me like that they could increase a vertical by 12 inches in under 30 seconds. I mean, there were some really amazing claims. Yes. But the problem is, is that if if you can't replicate it anywhere outside of the confines of what you do then what's it's the efficacy of yeah it's like so that but amazing shit don't get me wrong yeah you know i think it, it all goes back to what you just said i mean there's three types of contraction you need to train all three types of contraction there's you know you want to train in all three planes of movement you want to you know you want to train both multiple joint and single joint fashion 
you know, and as long as you're doing that in a balanced way, you've got a pretty solid program, you know, from there, it then becomes like, where the, where's the athlete at in their progression and where, um, and how much stress can their body take? Cause I mean, you at, at 10 years in was quite a bit different than you one year in. The one thing that, and dude, you've probably seen this too. The guys that ended up making it, like, because the the NFL is extremely deceiving. The um, the idea that like the average is three years is kind of bullshit. It's like you either play one day or you play ten years. Right. There's a couple right. guys in the middle, you know, that maybe you're healthy, right? Yeah. Like, there's a lot of guys that get to that three year, and then the team doesn't want to be the guy, you know, the one holding the dance. They don't want to spend the money. Yeah. 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 Best them. So in in the NFL, whichever team. Vest you, which means that you're on their roster for the three game, three years, three games. They're basically are, are like tied to you in terms of vesting you for your retirement. And so a lot of teams will like, you know, cut a guy before that three years, three games, and then nobody picks them up. And the dude, that's like the end of his career because nobody wants to do it. So it's, um, but I think for myself, um, especially a lot of the, uh, you know, because I've consulted and worked with a bunch of young NFL players. I'm like, dude, the, the, the day you start figuring out recovery, Yeah, you know, because I'm like, you you can burn the candle at both ends, and I did, and then all of a sudden I hit thirty, and I was like, fuck, I I can't stay out till two in the morning drinking, you know, and it's like, it's almost like if I could have figured out the recovery game a little bit sooner, but you know what, a lot of the shit that's come out right now is pretty amazing, like with the uh, like the cryo chambers and also with the infrared saunas and people. We would just do a bunch of contrasts, like old school contrasts, but now I think people are are getting real jiggy with the stuff, with like the. like the Normatec compression stuff and uh, just a lot of the modalities that are coming out are super interesting. It's the X factor. It's the X factor right now. Cause it's one of those things that, I mean, everybody's, you know, everybody's working hard on the field. They're working hard in the weight room. They're doing things. More people are doing, it used to be nutrition was the X factor. Now it's, it's rest and recovery. And, and what are you doing for that? And so like you mentioned New England, I went up there last year as well. And, I mean, they, they've got the salt, you know, they've got the salt tanks and they've got the, you know, they got the crowd uh, chamber and they, I mean, the, the amount of money that clubs are investing in those areas right now is astronomical and probably rightfully so. Do you, uh, have, have you seen a big change in nutrition? I mean, I, I, as you know, some strength coaches dig on it, others just try to stay away from it. But I, uh, people always ask me like, you know, did my nutrition change? when I went from college to the NFL and I, I kind of laugh and I tell them, I'm like, well, when I was in college, uh, 740 a month was our scholarship check. My rent was about 450. So I had about, my parents kicked me a couple hundred bucks. I had about 500 bucks a month to live on and sort of food. I remember when, uh, I was living below the poverty line and then all of a sudden I got signed to my contract and had a whole bunch of zeros in my bank account yeah, and, right. walking in and being like, I can afford all this cheese. <laughs> and I remember it was the first time, in years that I'd walked into a uh, walked into a, like a, a supermarket. Yeah, you're not at the manager special getting oh, the gray steak and yeah. shit. Like <laughs> I remember being like, you know what? I will, what's the most expensive meat here? Give me three pounds of that. And I remember, and I remember thinking like, I'm gonna come by fresh every day. And I even got to the point where like I would just call them and they would deliver and have it in my in my fridge because I lived in uh, down in Rittenhouse Square in Center City. And um, that was the biggest thing. When people always ask me, I'm like, well, I was fucking broke, dude. Like five dollars mm-hmm. at Steve's Korean Barbecue was like the highlight of our week. You know, sure. like, uh, you know, we would spend all our money at Costco on frozen chicken breasts, uh, rice, black beans, and like grape nut cereal because it was the most nutritionally dense food I could find. And then all of a sudden you get in the NFL and you're like, you got all this extra money and you're like, you get a smile. Yeah. <laughs> you know? And so it, it's, it's pretty interesting. Like people always ask me that question and, and, and like, I don't always think that they have concept of like how far the below the poverty line you are when you're in college. Uh, right. We just had one of our kids that we trained. Um, he, uh, 
professional or now he's a professional baseball player. He just left to go play for Tampa and he sent me his rookie contract, which was like a thousand dollar signing bonus. And they play him like $1,100 a month. And I literally laughed. I was like, damn. I was like, well, good thing they're paying for your food, dude. <laughs> Hamburger in bulk. You know? yeah. Yeah. You're on your own. You know? Well, yeah, no, I think you're, I think the, uh, the answer to your question, I mean, I think it definitely has improved for sure. Uh, I think more so just in the fact that the university administrations and, and ownership groups in the NFL are recognizing the fact that it's an important aspect in the recruiting process and it's an, a retention process. Well, we just, I mean, even here at Eastern Michigan, which, I mean, you know, it's not the budget I had at Tennessee by any means. We just spent $80,000 on renovating a nutrition room and, and spent you know, $50,000 on a bod pod, which you know, for this, for a school at this level, it's, it's pretty, you know, it's pretty, that's quite a bit of an investment on top of the 150000 that we spend annually on on snacks and, and, and supplements, you know. And I think that's probably another area that it's improved. It's not just supplements now where it used to be this magic pill thinking and, and rationale. Now it's, now it's, you know, hey, look, what's the best – choices that we can get and we can get that from whole foods and um and really trying to educate i think the education programs have gotten a lot better uh in terms of trying to get the information out in, in, a, in a way that the athletes retain it um and so you know hopefully now once they they're you know they may still because of the poverty and and, and because of because the scholarship checks i mean just because of it with inflation and all that i mean it's probably about the same i'm still probably living in poverty in a lot of ways um, now when we looked at it, I remember, uh, when I was at Berkeley, I remember one of my buddies was in, um, like the urban planning deal and he came in and, uh, one of the guys I played with, he's like, yeah, we were, went through like, uh, um, you know, what's considered, you know, poverty line where you're, at, at, uh, you know, eligible for benefits and this. And he's like, we can all go get food stamps. Yeah. He's like, that's how fucking poor we are. I was like, well, I'm, I'm not, I don't want to get food stamps, but I mean, that was the 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 funny mindset of it but um i was gonna ask you you brought up the bot pod and i remember you know we had them everywhere i went i mean i remember we got one in philly and uh have you ever been able to really use it meaningfully because the only way we used it at philly was actually to get to bet and gamble because we had a contest in our offensive line was who was the leanest and who was the fattest and we actually had an award which was a mr potato head in a in, in a in a clear box and the fattest <laughs> guy had to have the potato head in his box and so then the leanest guy got a money too so um i always think like we just use it to gamble in the bet uh as a college strength coach when you have that bot pot i mean is it something where you know you're not only i imagine you're checking lean body mass but is it more like a checks and balances like is the you know like like what are these kids not doing like why aren't you getting better or, or is it just more just for you know yeah it's not just it's not just i mean obviously we want to know what the lean body mass is we want to know what their fat free the fat mass is and especially in a in a in a, a time period in, in an athlete's career when development is when they're you know they're the freshman twenty you know the fact that they're away from home um you know and and obviously they're going through a maturation process um you want to make sure what you're putting on is solid weight that's functional weight efficient weight and um so we use it quite a bit there we use it quite a bit in determining in determining uh, caloric expenditure and uh, caloric requirements um, and giving them a more of a, a more of a, a dialed in baseline of where we should be. Um, and so it, it's more of a, at the end of the day though, to answer your question, it's more two, two purposes. One serves as a motivational tool because we have the NFL standards that we can, we can show them uh, what, you know, what it would define what good, what's good for them uh, for their position group. Um, and then it's, and it's an educational tool. You know, it's like, you know, we're doing the right things or we're not doing the right things. 
What's the uh, what's the highest you've seen? Uh, actually, I just uh, just this year we had a, we had a a thirty nine percent guy. Woo! Uh, three hundred fifty pounds. Thirty nine percent. Yeah, coming in. So we'll see what I can do with that. My God, uh, <laughs> uh, we had uh, Hank Fraley, who was our center, Honey Bun Hank. Uh, yeah. was, uh, I think he was thirty one, maybe thirty two percent. Wow. Uh, yeah, and he was our starter, so he ended up he, he had that potato head in his locker for a long time. I ended up uh, I, I ended up winning. I was three three oh six at eight uh, percent. I was the only guy over ten over wow. under ten percent in the bipod. In the bipod. Wow, that's impressive. Yeah, it was two hundred eighty two pounds of lean muscle. I remember the guy who uh, uh, actually brought the bipod. That was the dude. He came out and actually retested me because he had never seen a dude over three hundred pounds under ten percent. I believe it. So yeah, the guy came out and he was like, took pictures of it and the whole deal and was like, it's the first one I've seen. I was like, well, if I can get some, yeah, 39% is fucking. Yeah. It's uh, it, it's uh, we got a lot of work to do with that one. What is that? That's a 350 pounds. Yeah. I just did the math actually. Is that uh, like 174 pounds of body fat? It's about right. Yeah. It was like, I think it was 168 or something. Oh, if I remember correctly. Um, so, yeah, a lot of a lot of inefficient movement right there. I would love to hear, uh, and a freshman too, God, I would love to see where he is in four years, just for the mere yeah. fact that even if you were to cut that like in half, I mean, well, half would be, or geez, even by a third. Just to, it's, know, a, it's a life. kindergartner. <laughs> you know, you're like, like <laughs> we're going to train for life. Let's just spend <laughs> some body fat so you're not fucking with type 2 diabetes. Uh, any like medical history on that kid? Has he got uh, any? Type? Let's, let's no. uh I want to stick with motivation. So you oh, sorry, sorry, Bod, sorry. Bod Pod is a motivation tool, and you said the NFL standards. So right. what other ways do you have to motivate the unmotivated? 39% is high. That kid may right. not be motivated. I don't know. But what are some of your motivational tools? Is it all NFL standards, or what else do you use? Yeah, I think, um, you know, the, the, we, we talked a lot briefly earlier, but, you know, I, I, start, every meet, I start every introduction, every athlete experience with, uh, with what we call their why meeting. You know, and, and I want to know what their why is. It's a, it's, you know, I started calling it a why. I mean, I did it before that, but, you know, Simon Sinek has a good book, Start With Why. I don't know if you guys have read it. Um, but, um, but that's what, you know, we, we go there. And some of the questions I ask are, you know, like if, you know, if these guys think they're invincible. They think that their, their football career is never going to end. And so one of the very first questions I'll ask is, you know, if football was taken away from you tomorrow, what would you do? You know, and for example, you know, when, when that kid came in, that 350 pounder, we had another kid come in from a JUCO and, you know, it's like, I, I, you know, I think I'd want to sail around the world, you know, well, that's, that's a, that's a pretty unique deal, you know, that he wants to do. And so understanding that and our, our head football coach is a sailor, he competes in, in sailing competitions in, in, in his month of vacation in the off season. And so that was a, a way for us to connect on a different level you know, and, and find out some of the motivations behind what he's doing. And at the end of the day, we got to find out why they want to play the game. I mean, is it because they're good at it? Is it because it's, it's a social experience for them? Is it because it's the only way that they're going to be able to legally hit somebody without going to jail? You know, you got to find out why uh, they want to do that. You know, for some guys, it's the only way that they're going to get out of, you know, I mean, we had, a, we have another player um, watched his best friend get murdered right in front of him. Dad was shot and killed a week out of being out, out, let out of jail. Grandfather just passed away. And, um, and the cousin just got killed in a in crossfire of gang situation. 
all within four weeks, you know. And so his motivation for, for, for playing the game is because he wants to go back and he wants to change things for his, his neighborhood, you know. Um, and so when we know that, we're able to get to a whole different level uh, with the athletes. And I think that, you know, what we try to do, what I try to do is I tell people all the time, we have them for two hours out of the day. They have 22 hours to mess up everything that we just did. If I'm, if I'm not involved with those 22 hours, uh, then I'm fighting a losing battle every day. And, and I don't like fighting losing battles, you know, and so I want to make sure that I'm involved with that. And I think one of the ways that you can build that trust and, and get them to be motivated when they walk into your weight room is provide them life experiences, you know, and so we, we take them out. We do all kinds of things. I mean, you know, if you're just coming in every day and you're just hitting the weights every day and that's the only thing that you do and talk about, then it's going to be, you know, it's going to be a very clinical type of relationship, much like, you know, like John, you were saying in the NFL where it's, you know, you come in and you put in your hour and you leave and, you know, and that might be the only time that you see the strength coach during that day, you know, versus being that guy, that confidant that they're coming to quite a bit uh, for different things. And so, uh, I take them out. I, you know, we, last year we took them, um, you know, we took them off site. We went and, uh, you know, uh, camped out on a beach that off of Lake, or one of the Great Lakes and climbed the biggest sand dune we could find. And, you know, and, and, you know, I got kids that are still to this day, never seen a Great Lake, never climbed a sand dune. It's a life experience, you know, and when you provide that type of stuff for them, um, you know, they, 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 they see you in a different light, you know, and they want to work for you. And so you got to find ways to motivate them, especially up here in Michigan when it's freaking six degrees in January and they got to get up at six 30 to come work out. How do you, um, like, what do you do for daily accountability? Like I always think like, uh, for me personally, like I was more of a strength coach guy than an ATC guy. Like I personally, um, have some friends that are trainers, but I fucking hated the trainers. Like I like them personally, but, uh, and I'm yeah. sure you see guys that are training room guys want to fucking hang out there. Even there. I had this firm belief that like the training room was like herpes. The more I was around it, the more it was going to stick to me. And once I got it, I was never getting it off. And, uh, <laughs> I, I used to trainers all the time. I'm like, dude, and I used to yell at young guys that would like go in there and want to hang out and sleep or fuck around. I'd be like, get the fuck out of this place. I'm like, the train ages. Uh, and they were like, well, where should I hang out? I'm like, go talk to the fucking strength coaches. Yeah. And then I was like, you know what? You can get bigger and stronger through osmosis. Just being around those weights is a good thing. So I, right. I would like for, you know, that kind of, you know, we bring people in and they might not have that mindset like what do you do in terms of daily day basis to make sure that those other 22 hours uh, they're wired in? I mean, you know, having them trained at 6 a.m. is probably one of the greatest. I mean, and we, we know this because we train at 6 a.m. too. You know, you go out and you stay out late and you, and you feel like shit and you come in at 6 a.m. There's no greater motivation than that, especially having a dude who's fucking ripped and roaring ready to go on you. Right, right. I think, you know, peer motivation obviously is the biggest, is one of the biggest factors. Um, you know, which I, one of the things that I always say to our staff is that you need to, you need to schedule for success, you know? And so, yeah, you can put the workout at six 30, but if you have a, a nine 30, a, a, a 12 30, a one 30 as well, well, you know, when that guy's getting up at six 30, there's one guy that's just probably coming in from the club. There's another guy that's still asleep and, and another guy that's, you know, you know, whatever with his girlfriend, right. You know, and all those things sound better than coming in to work out, you know? And so, we put our guys, we schedule them in. We, you know, we would go either offense, defense, or power and skill, depending on where we're at in the training year. Uh, we put them as a group of four with our offense linemen only being the, the only exception to that. We keep them as a group of five because they play as a group of five. Um, and, you know, in that rack, essentially what we have is we have three levels of accountability. Uh, level one of accountability is your lifting partner. 
So my lifting partner in college was the best man at my wedding. You know, and so it's the guy that's going to tell you what you need to know, not what, you know, what you need to hear instead of what you want to hear, you know? And, and, and so, um, so if you're not doing your set, you know, right, you know, uh, I'm not blowing you up, John, I'm blowing Luke up for letting you get away with that, you know? Um, so there's one level of accountability there. The second level of accountability is that if you take a rack of three, we'll have the starting five offensive linemen in the middle you know, the second string to the right and the third string to the left. And if you're not getting it done, my job as the strength coach is to turn over the team to the head coach at the end of the summer, at the end of the winter that I feel comfortable with, you know, and I trust, you know, and so I'll demote you. I'll take you down and I'll bring a guy up. And if we're constantly doing that, guys, you know, they want to, they want to, they want to stay in that group. And then the third level of motivation is having that coach right there you know, making sure that you're doing exactly what's on the card at the right prescription at the right weights, recording the data properly, because, you know, especially with you guys, I'm sure you go in a lot of different boxes and high school weight rooms and things like that, where, you know, it goes, I'm going to do a 135 for two to warm up. And then I'm going to throw a 275 and get pinned in one, you know, and, and that's what the extent of their bench workout is, you know, here you're going to, when it says 65% for five, you're going to, you're going to do 65% for five. You know, we're going to, we're going to record that data. So, and then you got, uh, I guess a fifth, a fourth level of motivation is me running around like a freaking maniac. <laughs> this is where it needs to be. That That's huge. Yeah. One thing we speak a lot about is called mutual accountability. So that's either respecting the coach relationship and that they're giving you instruction and you're adhering to it. But the biggest thing that I try to, whenever I walk into a weight room is teammates, they have to give each other constructive criticism because that is sport. If you blow an assignment, I expect the guy guy next to you to call you out and you're able to not take it personally. Right. Make that correction. Uh, so we took that from John's, John's friend, uh, who, former SEAL, Jeff Gonzalez, uh, but then just apply that to, to sports. So I, I well, Tex, uh, you're actually, you sugarcoated it really, really well. Um, <laughs> what I like to refer to it as is ridicule. Yeah. That ridicule is by far one of the strongest motivators. Should be. Hands down, it is, especially in, in the environment. And the re- no, reason it I, has to be because well, there are people you know it doesn't work. Oh, for. It, but but then then they should just then they're out. Uh, yeah. But I I started laughing when you brought up the point that uh, you know you got your your first string, your second string, your third string all straight next to each other, and if the guy's fucking bullshit, you need to mode them. So here's a situation where you know they might think like, hey, on the field, I'm a starter. This and then all of a sudden they put in a shitty performance in the weight room, and you're like, well, you're not the starter anymore. Well, what do you mean? They're like, well this is the off season. This is my field. I'm in charge of this. And, uh, you know, you keep this up. I'm telling the head coach and you, you know, you're not going to be starting on fucking first day of training camp. Right. Me, uh, one, I never heard that before. And two, I started laughing because I I think it's genius. Um, and I, I'm stoked that actually your, your, uh, head coach, uh, believes in you enough to do it. Yeah. You you have to have that. That's the key for sure. I've I've seen, because I mean, I, I've seen head coaches come in and, uh, you know, like, how do I put this? Fuck everything up. Fuck everything up because the one thing <laughs> the head coach, like they're not weight room guys. They don't know fucking sets and numbers. They don't know this. All they want to know is they want to see their, you know, chart show up or they, they want to get a typed readout of like, what was the one RM? Yeah, show me the report. Yeah, show me the TPS report. report. Yeah, and it's like, you know, and then they're going to somehow, like that That was one that tripped me out especially in, uh, uh, you know, well, this guy does this. And and I remember uh, when I came in as a, a young guy at Berkeley, uh, Todd Stussy had been yeah. drafted. First round, Stuce was like a beast. I mean, he benched like 500 pounds. I mean, had all these numbers. And so, like, Stucey was like, 
what we strive for to be like Stu's and uh, like all of his numbers. And we were always chasing these numbers because if we could meet those numbers. Then that would make us a first round draft pick. And we get to play when he played 14 years. And uh, I remember coming on pretty early and thinking to myself, I'm like, nobody ever asked me my bench press or nobody ever asked me my 40 time when I was playing on the field. I mean, all of these numbers have to be able to translate out to this given thing. And I think what happens where coaches forget, especially is being like, all these numbers are great. And I know you're really excited about them, but at the end of the day, like, you know, if if it's not done well, I mean, like, so I I always think that strength coach or head coaches would benefit a little bit more from actually maybe seeing the guys come train. I mean, getting up in the morning and doing it instead of just turning the reins over, but maybe they got other stuff to do. Yeah, you know, I think that the the role of the strength coach and, and how uh, impactful you are now. I mean, obviously, it's it's quite a bit different now than it was, you know. And and so now it's it is that valued position where it's like a, a coordinator. And and and, and honestly, it should be valued that way. I mean, show me another position coach, you know, that's dealing with 105 guys year round. Um, you know, it, it just there's nobody like that. I mean, offensive coordinators, defensive coordinators only deal with half the team. You know, the good thing is that here, that's part of the reason why I came here is because the head coach and I have that kind of relationship. And, um, you know, and I, but I've been able to maintain that, that same type of, uh, you know, especially with the position coaches, you know, especially the O-line coaches, because, I mean, if there's going to be a weight room guy on staff, it's usually going to be the O-line coach, you know. But kind of getting back to a little bit of what you were saying earlier, Tex, I mean, you know, uh, you know with this generation, with Generation IY, with these athletes now and, it's it's the the art of the difficult conversation is is a lost art you know and and um, I think that's maybe sometimes why uh, you know people respond to you guys so well because you'll tell them exactly how it is or or why they respond to strength coaches in general because strength coaches typically don't have a way of sugarcoating shit right they're going to tell you exactly what it um, what they you know what they think and what they believe in and and as long as they're supported by their their administration their coaches they're gonna it's going to carry some weight. Um, you know, but having that, you know, I mean, we, I have, you know, I give our guys, you know, uh, every year I give them a questionnaire of whether or not they think that, you know, do they think that they're going to go to the NFL? It's, it's a question amongst many. And every single year, every guy is like, yeah, of course I'm going to the NFL. We all know that that's not the case, you know. And so rather than, you know, um, have, uh, you know, just be like, yeah, you probably have a chance and you suck. So there's no chance for you. I don't want to, I don't want to kill their dream. I don't want to be a dream killer. I want to, I want to be, I want to support that, but I also want to have the difficult conversation. And that's where you bring in the info combine numbers or their, or their work ethic or whatever. And it's like, look, buddy, I, I, I'm the guy that can help you get there. I'm the guy that can help you get those numbers, but you're not even work close right now, you know? And, and you know what, your attitude and your effort isn't matching what you're telling me you want to do, you know? And so that's great. If that's what your why is, that's why you're playing this game is because you want to go to the next level and all that. Fantastic. I want to help you do that. But you know, but right now, ain't happening if you unless you change something or you or you reach towards these goals and really buy into what we're trying to do and 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 do it and live it for all those 24 hours not just the two hours you're in here so i'd like to stay on this topic but then switch gears to strength coaches so in your book i love this is you only hire head strength coaches so let's talk about keeping and uh, motivating interns your screening process how do you see through the bullshit of yeah, I want this. They're just telling you, but they don't do anything to show you. So what do you, what do you do in terms of your, your interview process, your screening, and then motivating these, these kids who think they know what they're getting into? 
Yeah, I think, uh, you know, one of the things that I've, I've, I've become known for is the fact that I, I've trained a lot of coaches that have gone on. I think it's something like the last number was like 35 head strength coaches out now out there now have been on our staff in some way, some shape or form. A lot of them coming through our intern program. And, uh, and so to answer your question, I mean, I, I do it off sheer volume at first. There's, there's no shortage of people that want to be strength coaches now, uh, which is great. And so when I was coming out of Ottawa University, a little small school, NAI school, not a whole lot of people were willing to give me a chance. And I thought I was going to become a pretty good coach. Um, so, you know, I, I pretty much take in anybody that, that kind of passes just our bare minimums, which is you're going to have to be able to live, you know, for free. You're going to have to be able to support yourself, that you want to be a strength coach, that you have some sort of scientifically based uh, degree program that, that, or, or athletic playing experience that kind of blanks it believable that you want to go in that direction. And then once they're here, I hold them extremely accountable. You know, and, uh, you know, and so if they, if they, you know, they don't show up, they should, you know, they do the wrong things. They're not, they're not teachable. Um, we eliminate them. And I do that uh, because of, a, I have an obligation to the profession to keep the right people in Two, I'm doing it as a, I, I, it's a breeding ground for me. I'm, I'm looking to the people that I've, I've developed, you know, that have taught my system um, and, and, and understand the level of, of, um, accountability that I expect I, I'm looking for those people everything else I, honestly I can teach you know um, the, the things that aren't teachable the things that you look for the x factors are guys that have uh, a big picture understanding um, of, of what goes into uh, college athletics or professional athletics and uh, and then some intangibles you know I mean you can't teach a guy that's six foot six 300 pounds you can't teach that you know but that but I want to make sure that I have somebody like that on my staff because I'm, you know, I'm the 5'11", 220 pound guy, right? I want to, I want to have a monster on my staff that's going to be there that in case I need to get a little rowdy with somebody, we got some backup, right? <laughs> that's John's department. That's exactly no, I, right. I, yeah. I mean, uh, the, the, the irony of this when I was laughing was uh, when I was in college, uh, Tom Cable was my offensive line coach. Yeah. And uh, Cage was, I didn't realize at the time I was 18, Cage was 28. And had and had already been a you know a, a college offensive line coach for a year. Gilby had hired him when he came in, and so Capes was like, you know, had played in the NFL. You know, had, had was a scab, and then got out and started coaching. I mean, so he was 28 years old and was still pretty strong and still pretty stout, and physically probably could have still been playing. Right. So I mean, all of a sudden he comes in and he's in there fucking training with us. And uh, I'm like thinking, like you know, it's fucking coach, and you know, you're 18 years old. I don't know how people. I mean, he could have been 26 or 76, right? <laughs> and I remember he was in there tearing it up, and like you know, like we're doing punch drills, we're doing all this, and he's literally fucking frothing them out, trying to fight us at all this time. <laughs> and I remember being like, my coach, I call my parents, I'm like, Kate's crazy, and they were like, what do you mean? I'm like, he's in training our groups, he's doing this, and they were like, well, uh, you know, I mean, you know, and my parents didn't know how old he was. Right. So I always think like, you know, for that type of deal. And um, uh, they ended up bringing in uh, a, uh, a GA, a guy named Dave Watson. I don't remember Dave, but he was a first oh, round, wow. or second round draft pick played in Chicago. And Watson was a, a big, strong dude, but uh, they brought in Zawatson as a, as, a, as a GA. And I remember like Zawatson, who had played in the league for a really long time, he had like dual scars here on his elbows, had hyperextended both elbows. And so we were doing punch drills and he like, took me aside. He's like, he's like, I'm going to tell you something that if you listen and you do it, you won't end up with these scars and you'll play a long time in the NFL. And, uh, right. and he, I think I was like 19 years old and I was like, what do you mean? He's like, I'm just telling you, 
He goes, I've been around this game. And he's like, I'm not telling these other dipshits this, but he's like, if you listen, you'll play in the NFL. And he told me about punching with my thumbs up. He goes, if you punch here, you're going to hyperextend elbows. If you punch your head up, it'll break. And he showed me that technique. And he was right. It saved me for, you know, I've used the majority of my NFL career. But there was a dude where, you know, that was the situation. It wasn't some old man. It wasn't this. Like, you got to have, like you said, you got to have somebody willing to come in and get rowdy. And then also talk to these young guys from a position of like, hey, this is what I've done. I mean, I was also thinking, too, you know, you having that conversation with players and being like, every scout that walks through here stops at my office. No question. Right. Not because I'm the strength coach, but because I worked with all these guys. I know all the scouts. I went to the combine. I did this job. And you know, the one thing I'm not going to do is I'm not going to lie for you because these are my friends. And if I lie for you and you turn out to be a bust, then I lose my credibility. So I'm going to tell the truth. Exactly right. That's what these kids don't realize. And I think like, you know, that's what's so powerful in that message. You're like, they're going to come through. And, uh, you know, all the times, and, you know, and I'm sure you've seen this too, where guys fuck off for four years and then all of a sudden their fifth year, now all of a sudden they want to get serious. Yeah. I'm going to get serious and I'm buckling down and making workouts and coach have been here. And you're like, dude, where were you the last four years? Yeah. Right. You know, I'm more interested in the body of work, not just the individual, you know, for that day. Ron, I listened to your podcast with Alvar Meal, and that's one of the biggest takeaways is uh, you were talking about asking about performance tests. And one of his was a 90 second box over kind of a jump drill. And you asked him why. And he's like, well, that's an easy way to tell how much kid wants it or how much he's got heart. And yep. a kid without heart, that's a kid that's going to get you fired. Right. Yeah. No question. I think, you know, get, you know, going back again to your question, I think one of the things that I, I try to do, and I think that any coach, business owner or whatever, uh, you have to know your strengths. I mean, we all know what our strengths are. And, and, and I know, uh, I mean, we use a real easy rubric here. Uh, I mean, there's Myers-Briggs and there's all these different personality tests and things to kind of help you find what type of personalities fit well with you and this, that, and the other. But, we have this, uh, it's Gary Smiley. It's a, it's a lion, beaver, otter, and uh, golden retriever. And so the lion, right, is a guy that's like me. All right, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to be out in front. That's John. John's going to be out in front. He's going to pound his chest. He's going to bark lots of things. But it's maybe not always the guy that's going to see out all the details, right? Um, then you've got to have the, the golden retriever, the guy that's the, as loyal as the day is long. You know, he's going to be the guy that you, you can leave the room and know that everything is going to get done. You got to have the otter, the guy that's playful. That's going to be the guy that that that, that gets every. That's going to joke with the players. It's going to get them excited to be there. It's going to put a smile on their face. It's maybe going to dance, do whatever. And then you got to have the 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 uh, beaver that's meticulous. That's going to put all the details and everything together. And so you can have, you can be any one of those four things and be a head strength coach. You just got to hire for what you're not, you know, and uh, and manage that. And I think that that's the key in running any kind of successful organization is that you're, you're meeting all those needs. Your athletes have the ability. So if I'm a playful player, if I'm a, a wide receiver that I like to dance, I like to joke, and I like to have fun and this, that, and the other, you got to have a guy that's going to be able to relate to that, you know, um, on your staff. You know, and it doesn't mean that he's bad. He's not a bad person because he wants to do those things. It's just the way that he motivates himself. You know, and I think that that's an important part of it as well. Did Did you guys do Myers Briggs with you with, with your uh, with your players, or just with your coaches? I've I've done it before uh, Myers Briggs. I've done I mean, I've done so many different personality tests, and then I you know I really got into it quite a bit when I was with Army Special Forces because selection, you know, is everything. I mean, I mean, there's a lot of guys that could run two miles in under under 12 minutes, but choosing the right guy that can run two miles in under 12 minutes is, is where it's all at. When you before you invest millions of dollars of taxpayers' money into training them. You know, and, uh, 
And so, I mean, I've just taken those, those same principles and applied them to how I select our, our staff. And then I'm really, I mean, my big push, especially being here where I have a lot more influence with the coaches and the coaching staff in our selection of our players. Well, I, I, you know what, that's kind of interesting. I mean, I, you know, uh, do some work with Naval Special Warfare and ended up doing some uh, Myers-Briggs with a guy named Bill Jeffries. Yeah, uh, Bill. You know Bill. Yeah, and uh, I, I remember sitting in there, and uh, I don't remember where you were. I was a INTP, but I remember him, uh, uh, when, he, when we sat down to talk about it, he's like, oh, you would have been a, a, a perfect, um, you know, special operations command guy, but uh, you would have been terrible in regular army. And he's like, and, and I think he 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 rules. Yeah. He, he, he's like, you know, the guys that get into the military that are, that don't fit within that cookie cutter, uh, cookie cutter have to go into these special operations commands because if not, they, they roll out. Yeah. Or they can't fit into it. And, uh, it was pretty interesting him talking about typing athletes and different people and how it all kind of fits in. Um, yeah, it's pretty fascinating. I mean, uh, people buy into it, other people don't, but I know the military and especially the government loves the Myers Briggs. It's like they're, they're benchmark for a lot of things at Watermark. I think it's, I think it's, you know, going back to just the weight room and, and trying to create a culture and, and, uh, and team, um, you have to know what you have and you have to, and you have to, what's hard about college. And this is where it's a little bit more, uh, I mean, you got, you know, shoot, you know, Belichick's a master at this, right? I mean, he brings in the right guys that are going to fit with his personality. That's going to fit. And he's not going to bring in the, the, the you know, the player is going to, they're, they're coming there to be, you know, do new England. They're not, you know, they're not coming there to do their own thing. They're coming there to do new England. It takes a certain type of player to do that, you know, and, and uh, I think that's hard where it's hard in college because, I mean, you, you lose coaches all the time and people come and go and you've recruited a kid, you know, well, he may be phenomenal, you know, but, they, but he may only respond to this type of coach versus this other type of coach, you know, and, and I've seen so many times guys go downhill um, because of, you know, just petty crap with coaches or, or uh, philosophies or, or whatever, you know, and that's, that's where it's tough. And that's why I think it's so important if you're going to be a, a successful strength coach or a successful coach in, in any capacity, um, you have to be able to be a little bit. I tell people all the time, there's a big difference between Ron McKeefrey and, and coach Mack. Coach Mack is a guy that can be in front of a thousand people can run, you know, can, can command a team, can, can dance and jack around with the players and do this and the other. Ron McKeefer wants to go sit in his office and close the door and not let a single freaking person talk to him the rest of the day, you know, but you have to be, you have to be both, you know? And, and, and so I think it, as, it doesn't mean just because you're an introverted guy, you can't, you, you, you can just pass by through life and say, I'm only going to be an introverted guy. You're going to have to be extroverted at some point if you're going to be successful in some capacity. Well, the, um, the big thing too is uh, early in my NFL career, we had, and I uh, got him, Kevin Elko, come in, and Kevin's uh, yeah. you know, he's a saving Dooley guy, man. I, dude, well, what's what's funny is I'm sitting here and I'm like, God damn, I, I thought I, I think I've met you and I can't figure out where I know you from, yeah. but it's funny, we know all the same people, and so yeah, uh, Kevin Elko and I were great friends, and I remember he recommended a book to me one time, uh, called Thick Face Black Card. And it was this idea of, you know, thick place, like don't let anybody, you know, know anything bothers you. And then black heart, like, you know, don't take anything personally. Yeah, I heard that one. The problem becomes, and I, and I really saw a lot of guys fall by the wayside to the, uh, well, my coach doesn't like me. And I remember hearing that one quite often. And I remember telling young guys, I'm like, here's the deal. Um, I, I worked with guys and the guy I played next to you for a long time. I fucking hated his guts. But we had a mutual understanding that our job was to kick ass and this is my role. This is your role. And as long as you do your role, I don't have to care about what you, who you are as a person and we'll be cordial, 
but I'm not inviting you over to my house for, you know, for Thanksgiving. And, um, this whole, like my coach doesn't like me. And I'm like, let me tell you as a, from standing on both sides of it, the coach's job is to play the best player to win the game. And that's regardless of, uh, you know, how they feel about you. Now, if there's a coach that's petty enough to put in a lesser player because he does, because there's something then he'll lose his fucking job. Right, you know, because it's worth it if well, he's willing to take the risk. Well, right? yeah, or or the, the head coach is going to be like, wait a minute, you're playing this fucking stiff, and this guy's better. Why? Well, I don't like him because of this. The coach would be like, I don't give a fuck who you like. You play the best player, the best horses run. And I, right. remember, you know, Tom Cable said that, but I remember Oko always told me that, like, you know, don't take anything personally. And I, and I'm always amazed with young guys where it's like, well, my coach didn't like me, and I've heard that shit so much. And I remember telling young guys all the time, I'm like, um, you know. You know, he, he doesn't like me, doesn't like this. I'm like, you got to get this whole like thing out of your mind. I'm like, dude, your job and you are here to do this task. And the coach wants the task done the way he wants it, not the way you want it. So right. if the coach tells you to do something and you lose, it's on him, not on you. Now, if you go out there and you lose and you didn't do what he wants, then he fires your ass. Right. And that was so hard for young guys to understand. And I, I picked that up pretty fast. I remember telling the coach, I'm like, hey, here's the deal. Uh, if you want me to do this and I lose, then it's on you. And he's like, perfect. Yeah, and sure enough. Uh, I did the technique he wanted, and I lost. And he looked at me, and he was like, "Yeah, no, I didn't look good." Let's yeah. go. And I ended up developing my own technique and what and the way I wanted to do it. And then he ended up going and filming clinic film on it a year later, and wanted to start teaching it to people. Yeah, um, I I flip that around with our guys all the time with academics. It's like if you're going to class, you know, these teachers at the end of the at the end of the semester, if you went to class, you sat in the front row, you participated, you turned in every assignment you know, and it's, and you don't do well. Well then if you're sitting in front of the, the dean of the, of, the, of the department and you're like, I did all these things and the teacher didn't reach me. Well, that teacher's not going to flunk you because they don't want to have that conversation. You know, they're not, it's not going to happen. So if you just do your part, so many times what happens though, is like you don't do everything right at practice. You maybe show up late to lifts. You don't, you know, do this, that, or the other. And then and it's easy for a coach to be like, well, I don't trust that guy. You know, I don't believe in that guy, you know, and, and so I, the, the power, this is where it, I think it's, it's a whole nother conversation, probably another freaking, you know, long podcast, but the, 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 the players have the power, you know, I mean, you look at like in Missouri, I mean, they just, they just got the freaking president fired of the university, you know, I mean, the players have the power to do, you know, to, to change things for the best. They just get, they gotta, they gotta they stop doing all the petty shit that you're talking about and letting it go, you know, and, and, um, I think that's so important. I'm glad you said that. Do you have an approach for kind of distractions? So discipline off the trouble, uh, off the field troubles. Do you, are you the one that handles that? Does the sports coach handle that? Yeah. I mean, most of the time it often falls to the strength coach. And, and I would say here, I handle a lot of it just because I'm the one that has the best relationship with them to where something that's outside of my scope you know, outside of the weight room, if somebody's going to do it, they're, they're going to do it for me before they do it for maybe somebody else. Um, and it just goes back to relationships. But, I mean, in some ways I look at it as a positive where I'm able to go in and, and have those life conversations and really, um, and really try to reach the athlete and reinforce that relationship building for when I have them actually in the weight room. But um, in terms of handling, you know, uh, you know I think you, know, you just try to, you try to educate them, give them lots of things. I mean, we bring in lots of people – to talk to him. I think um, learning from other people's experiences, you know, you know, bringing guys like John in where it's like, Hey, look, man, this guy played 10 years or however many years in the NFL. This is, you know, the values and things that he learned along the way. This is where, 
you know, he wished he would go back and slap young John in the freaking side of the head because, you know, he should have been doing this all, all the uh, whole time. Coach, anytime you want me to come out, I'm more than happy to come out and talk to you. Talk to yeah, you. we'd love would, it. Uh, yeah, I'd, I'd love to come out. I, I, I did it for the kids at Baylor, and uh, it, was, it was pretty interesting to, to get up and talk with those kids. Yeah, and come ask me questions. It was it was cool, and you know, coming from uh, you know, having done it, and, and even have Kaz say like, "Hey, when I was young, no nothing strength coach. This guy was already a you know all pro." So it's uh, yeah, and, and anytime, man. I'd love to. Yeah, I'm, I'm always happy to get back and and pay it forward. Yeah, no, that's awesome. Kaz was an assistant for me at South Florida um, <laughs> for a couple of years, you know, and and uh, doing a freaking great job down there too, but. Um, but yeah, I think that, that right there, when you're a level removed, I mean, even though we got some guys on our staff even right now that played in the league, um, you know, we've got guys like myself that have coached in the league. I mean, still when you're, when you're, when you're entrenched, it doesn't matter what the environment, when you're entrenched, it, it's nice to get that fresh voice coming in and saying a lot of the similar things, but, but from a, from a position of, of, of realness and, and experience. And, um, I think that that's. Every every single person that we brought, we just had Maurice Claret come in. You guys remember Maurice Claret from yeah. Ohio State? Oh yeah. We had him come in and talk to the team, and um, you know, it's it's guys like that. Every single guy that I've asked is like, what what would have changed you? You know, so I mean, yeah, right now your life's changed because yeah, you went to jail for however many years, and you you lost this, that, and the other, and it's it's easy to say this is why your life changed. What would have changed you in the moment to to make a different, you know, uh, to, to course direct? You know, and it, and it was always, hey, I wish I would have had somebody come in and, that I would have valued and trusted and believed to say, you know, here's a different way. You know, and, and it's unfortunate sometimes that that's not coaches because that's ultimately why we get in the profession because we want to make that type of impact, you know. But part of that sometimes, I, I mean, sometimes I think that's the part that coaches have a hard time with is it's like there there's too much ego you know, and, and Derek Dooley would always say that coaches were once players too, you know, anytime they things, I mean, we all, we act like players sometimes too, right? Well, well that's our, uh, uh, those who can, can, those who can't coach. That's right. That's, that's right. our other big one, you know, and then, uh, yeah, I mean, uh, I, I, I know Maurice Claret's story and I actually uh, recently saw something where he's going around and actually doing some, you know, doing a great job. Yeah. And uh, I actually heard him speak, I think it was on some on YouTube and, I thought it was excellent. And, you know, the perspective that that kid had, I mean, you could not have fucked up an NFL career better than that kid did. I mean, he came out. He'll I mean, tell you that himself. Oh, it, it was unreal. And, and then he figures, I'm going to sue the NFL to get into the NFL. <laughs> Little they know the NFL is the mob. And <laughs> the mob, they're not going to let you in. Like, it, it's just, it's, it's, or what I got from that kid was uh, a lot of really, really bad advice by people that, were telling him what he wanted to hear, not what he should have heard. And, yeah. um, you know, when, when I went to uh, uh, Kansas City, they had a guy on the team, a guy named Billy Long. And yeah. Billy Long, we used to joke, we used to call him the brother coordinator because uh, Bill, Billy's whole deal with Vermeil was, uh, you know, you know, you got Dick Vermeil, you know, the story coach, I mean, older white guy. I mean, didn't always have a great uh, ability to relate to, I guess, you know, a lot of the brothers on the team. And so they had Billy Long who was, you know, strength coach but kind of like a coach and kind of a go-between a, a go-between and uh you know Billy was great for that I remember when I got there Billy picked me up and talked and he was kind of that I guess you could say like uh, I don't even know like he was just like the guy on the staff that kind of fit with everybody and like you know hey let's go out and get some B if there's a problem Billy Lawson go and he was just right. yeah that was the way he fit and I and I, and I always thought that was so smart to to, to have somebody 
that, you know, was kind of a coach, but still a friend, not a play, you know, kind of fit between it. And it was, it was genius. It's why, you know, uh, and he was with those guys in St. Louis and really fit that role. And um, I think it's because, you know, guys, especially when they get to the NFL are kind of distrusting a coach, especially a strength coach, especially if you're the Turk, yeah. you know, and you need somebody that can be on, you know, the player's side, because at the end of the day, it's like everybody wants to win. And I think like, at least that's what I assumed. I'm like, you know, but then the problem is, is a lot of shit gets clouded. And I think you right. have somebody there to constantly reinforce being like, we're trying to all get to one place together and we'll do it a lot better together. And, uh, yeah, I mean, it's you know, having a guy like Florette come in, man, that was a home run. I would really like to hear that guy speak. Yeah, he was awesome. I think that's exactly what Tex was saying. I mean, I think that's the deal. And, you know, as, as coaches so many times, and, and this could go as business owners or, or whatever, is so many times we think what we want is the people that are just like us. You know, so I'm a type A personality. I'm a, I'm a, I'm a, I'm a lion. I want to surround myself with lions that we're going to, we're going to rule the world. Right. But the reality is, is that when you surround yourself with lions, man, it's freaking like, there's going to be a fight every single day, you know? Um, but you, you, you gotta have enough pro, You gotta have enough, uh, of, uh, understanding about yourself that, you, that, and, and your confidence in yourself that you can handle and manage those other types of people that you need to have so that you can have, those guys on staff. And so like, you know, like Kaz, Kaz was awesome with our guys. Now Kaz, you know, I mean, I, you know, Kaz and I would, you know, there was times when I'd be like, man, we've got to do it a little bit different way with this part of it. But like sometimes with players, there was nobody better, you know? And, and, uh, no, you know, he, I, uh, yeah, no, he, uh, yeah. I, like I, I remember when I saw him recently, um, I asked him, I'm like, you know, Kaz, what's your mission here? How's it changed? And he's like, you know, uh, I'm out of the title of strength coach, but that's not my job. I was like, really? What's your job now? He's like, I got to make these guys into men. Yeah. And he goes, you know, uh, where we are failing in college sports is a lot of these guys uh, don't have fathers. They don't understand that role model. They don't have this. And he goes, you know, that's just a fact. And he goes, you know, uh, people don't want to hear this because it's not the sexy, uh, you know, message. But, you know, a lot of these kids don't have fathers. They didn't grow up right. They don't this. They had nobody ever tell them no. They had moms with multiple kids and they were there, you know, and he goes, he goes, my job is to teach them how to not fuck up and to how, how to be a man. And if they fail, then that's on me. And he goes, you know, my job is strength coach. He goes, you know, we're using the weight room in here. And he goes, I got, you know, Keith Canton, who, you know, was, you know, is he goes, he's a weight room guy, you know, bang the numbers, you know, coach is going to get them right. And uh, he goes, but my job is so much more, you know, I'm looking at developing these young men into, you know, people way past what we are here. And, uh, dude, uh, it, it was, it was really inspiring to me. Like I, I listened to him and, you know, for me, it was, um, you know, I, I remember when I went to the NFL combine, I'm sitting there with all these, uh, uh you know, scouts and they're asking me this and they, I remember they were like, so your parents been married. Like my parents are coming up on their 50th wedding anniversary. They wow. still live in the same house. Uh, I got two older brothers. My one brother is a lawyer. My dad's a lawyer. Um, you know, my other brother was a lawyer. Now he does insurance and go to Berkeley. And so they were like, you are a white middle-class upper middle-class kid. Your family's together. Like, why do you need football? Right. And I, and I remember being like, well, what does everybody else say? And they were like, well, I mean, most of these guys, you know, don't have the the only way out. Yeah. Yeah. And so they, they told me like, these are the last three guys I've heard from. They were like, you don't fit the demographics for anything. Why are you going to play in the NFL? You should just go, you know, go to law school like you were planning. And I remember telling the guy, I'm like, well, I don't like to fucking lose. Right. And he like looked at me and was like, all right, well, that's yeah. a good one. Yeah. yeah. It's not like to lose. But um, I think what happens is, is um, a lot of these kids come into these, you know, are, are, are given this great gift of a scholarship because of their athletic talent. And, you know, a scholarship is given based off, you said, you know, high school performance, but really talent and their ability to, 
convert that potential into something tangible that, you know, all of a sudden they get bestowed, they get an opportunity to go play at the next level. And really that maturation process over five years, there's so many pitfalls and there's so many opportunities to fuck up. Right. And it's almost like a, a game of Frogger, you know, they're hopping through the street, you know, buses going by. And I think really as a strength coach, um, you know, and, and like really I hadn't thought about it until Casway brought it up. It's his opportunity or really his, his job and his job description to help those kids get through that game of Frogger. And yeah. like, you know, and he goes in and I, he goes, a lot of them got squished. A lot of them, I lose a lot of them along the way. And he goes, I, it hurts me for every one of them. And I think that's why he's done so well and that he's taken it a step further and looking at really just not developing athletes, but developing men. And dude, I was, I like hugged him. I was like, it's the best thing I've heard in a long time. Yeah. He's, a, he's an impressive guy. So that's one thing we always say is our job is to take athletes where they cannot take themselves. And so majority of the people are going to take that as performance numbers or, uh, you know, step on the field. But once you've been in the shit and realize you're in a locker room with 150 guys, 100 guys, maybe one, two, three, four go pro. So it's all about the 148 that aren't. So put them in the best position to succeed once they're done with their four years. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. I think that, you know, with, with the guys, you know, and, and, John, you know, you would agree with me. I think, you know, just because they go to the NFL or just because they, um, you know, they're in college uh, doesn't mean that they necessarily grew up and they developed those skill sets either, you know. <laughs> you know, they, you know, you're dealing with, I mean, I, I'm telling you guys, I mean, some of these, I think that to me, the NFL, that's, that's how, that defines whether or not you make it or not. Because you're not, typically you're not going to get in unless you have a base level of talent. Once you have that base level of talent, do you have the do you have the the the, the, the IQ to, to be able to comprehend the, the material, you know, and, and retain it um, when asked? Um, and then, are you going to be able to live? Are, are you going to be able to put yourself in, in a situation where you're going to be able to live properly, surround yourself with the right people, understand rest and recovery, understand nutrition, understand all these other things, so that you can that you can last. Uh, in the profession and I think that you know as a strength coach that's ultimately where a lot of times because you've had that role um, they've seen you in that role they grow up a little bit faster because you're, you're you're accelerated now because it's your, your time's your clock's ticking that they're going to go to the guy that they had the best relationship with in college and sometimes that's a strength coach and it's like okay man I'm ready who, who should I go to for food who should I go to for stretching who should I go to for this and, and you become this kind of uh, triage person where you're helping putting out the fires and, and, uh, and, and it often leads to some really good relationships um, that you have for, for quite some time. I'd like to change the topic if that's all right and talk about how technology has changed the game. So I know that y'all, you got Eastern Mish on train heroic. How yep. has that helped? And I mean, talk about the change. Yeah, we, you know, I think, um, again, going back to uh, going back to that last year at South Florida, I, I was the guy that left my cell phone in the car. Um, I was a guy that, that, that did not like technology. You know, I wasn't trying to figure out Google Drive or some of the things we were talking about even before we got on. Um, but, you know, what I learned in that last year was I needed to become a much more efficient strength coach. You know, and so a lot of these tools that exist now, you know, uh, you know, these, uh, you know, the Omega way we've talked about Nintendo units and catapult and heart rate and HRV and, and, and all this, this technology that exists train heroic. 
um, has been great platforms, but ultimately comes back to what you're doing with it and how you're educating the athletes um, to use the, the, the information wisely. And, uh, and so Train Heroic specifically we use to help push our workouts so that when our athletes leave, um, that we, we, we maintain that communication with them and, the, and they have a platform that they can go on and they, and they know the exercises and it's a real easy delivery system for that. Um, you know, we, we've used, um, various versions of velocity based training with Tindo units and bar sensei and elite form and some different things, um, to measure velocity with our dynamic effort and really being able to give them that knowledge where we used to say, move the bar fast. Now we can give them a definitive, uh, speed that we want them to place that, um, heart rate, you know, we've always said that, you know, we want you to work hard and, and, um, and conditioning and not being able to quantify that now being able to determine whether or not they're working hard or not, or, um, or understanding the, where they're at in recovery and how their, their hearts working, uh, with their conditioning. And so, I, I mean, I think technology is fantastic. I think ultimately though, it's, it's how you're implemented and into your program and how you're using that data. And I think, you know, again, going back to the NFL, it was really hard. Um, to get athletes to put any kind of device on them because at the moment that you introduce tracking, you also introduce a way to, to eliminate um, people, you know, and to, and to um, evaluate for, for, you know, for, for retention or not. And so I think that that becomes problematic a little bit at the higher levels. Yeah. We, we saw some of that with uh, who, who were we talking to recently where they were, Oh, um, the guys from whoop band. Mm-hmm. We're talking about being able to track all these different metrics over 24 hours and this and sleep and the guy how, you know, was selling it to these teams. And I said to the guy, I was like, there's no fucking way you could have got me over that thing. And the other That's right. Like, Why? I was like, let me tell you, the last thing I need to do is have my coach know to bed. I went to bed at uh, 2 a.m. on a Thursday night because we went out drinking at a good time. I'm like, yeah, you know, like that, like there, there, there's, uh, you know, and while that might not be smart uh, in terms of your grand scheme of things, I'm like, it's going to be extremely hard to get for, for you to make me wear an electronic leash that's going to let my coach know exactly what I am and am not doing. I'm like, it's going to be a tough sell. You just get a surrogate. You just put out somebody else. <laughs> That's pretty smart. I never thought of that. I've been like, <laughs> I got like one do-gooder who has like seven. Everybody's miles are strikingly similar. Yeah, everybody's hours a day. I mean, that's pretty good. I didn't think of that. You, you could have like, um, who was it, Michael Irvin? That was like, you got to have a full guy. Did you hear this at, at the uh, at, at the symposium that Michael Irvin got up and was like, you got to have a fall guy in your posse. That goes sideways. He's going to take the fall for you. And then the irony is they got rid of the symposium. Yeah, that's right. yeah, so they don't have it anymore. And, uh, oh, shit, dude. Uh, sorry it's really good advice, though. I mean, shit. <laughs> well, I, I, like, this is the problem. Like, and, and I think like this is what we get into. There's uh, – I'm going to talk about life in terms of like the pre-internet, pre-social media age. Right. Like, a lot of things it. that could – yeah, like – like there was a lot of things that said and happened over the course of the years that just happened. And then all of a sudden social media, internet, all these other things happened and all that shit had to go away. Like I'm sure you, you remember when we used to go to travel games that we used to get on after and they would give us two beers and we would take two beers. And if you don't want your beers, you would take somebody else's beers and we'd have drinking like a dozen beers on the plane ride. And the docs would come by and give out painkillers and you know, some guys take them, some guys wouldn't if you, everybody would take them. And then if you didn't take the painkillers, you would trade beers for painkillers. <laughs> so like, kind of like, cause I, I wasn't a painkiller guy, but I'll drink some beers. 
And so they're going to be like, okay, I got two beers. You, to, you know, and it was just like this fucking black market thing. Yeah. And then, um, and then all of a sudden it gets out that they're providing alcohol to us and that's a big problem. So then all of a sudden we no more beers and like everybody's like, where's the barter system's broke. Right. And then, and then, uh, so, so that, that was a problem. And then two of our coaches got into a fist fight. They got drunk and our offensive coordinator, our offensive line coach and our, uh, uh, I think it was our D line coach. So I forgot how it worked, but basically got in a fist fight on the plane. And we had to go break it up because they got drunk and started fighting each other. No more boots. Yeah. <laughs> like, so, I mean, like, like all this shit like happened and like, it was, it was really no fucking big deal. Right. Like, Relatively speaking. Well, right? Yeah. yeah it, it wasn't a big deal, but now social media and Twitter and Instagram and Snapchat and this, I mean, all of public shit. apologies. And- I remember the first time I saw the power of social media was Larry Johnson was pissed off about something. We went in at halftime and he like either tweeted or did or put something on social media. I remember that. Yeah. And uh, they fucking literally two minutes later walked in and told him to take his shit off and didn't set him out. So <laughs> I remember so, that. Yeah, I mean, and, and like, and I was like, what the fuck you mean? He, 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 uh, tweeted or- tweet, like, I, I didn't even know what it was. Like I, so before I got out of the NFL, uh, the only thing I used the internet for or a computer was, uh, to book plane tickets in the off season. Yep. So that was it. Um, so then all of a sudden I get into this and social media, I, I would have never had any of this stuff because I wouldn't want to be able to be tracked. <laughs> like, fuck, yeah. it's like an electronic leash. But I mean, guys have gotten into it. And like, I, I'm sure you guys are the same way. You're like, hey, you know what? You should have a Twitter, Instagram, stuff. have it all. And yeah. you should use it every 10 minutes because you know who's sitting at home? I'm sitting here in my office and I'm checking up on you dumb motherfuckers. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, like yeah, but that thing with Larry Johnson, like it was weird. Like all of a sudden, this dude walked in, coach walked in, they went and talked to him. He took a shit, and he went. And I was like, "What happened to Larry?" We're like, "Well, we're getting ready to leave." They're like, "Oh, he tweeted something." I'm like, "He did what?" Yeah, we, uh, we had you know, like, I won't say the institution or the the organization I was with, but we had we purchased the software that you could break into people's accounts that were especially that were private. You know, you can you can get away. There's no such thing as private anymore. Yeah. Mm-hmm. You know, no, it, it's. Uh, it, and, and especially when you go work for a team, I mean, there's that morality clause in every NFL deal where, you know, you will not do anything to embarrass the team. And, you know, I mean, there's, you sign away a lot of rights when you go work for the, um, you know, mm-hmm. the, the communist nation of yeah, the NFL. <laughs> and it, but you, it, I mean, it most guys know that going in, don't they? But, uh, but I think what people know, what people hear, what people understand are two different fucking things. Right. right. Like, um, I remember uh, Herm Edwards called me in his office and asked me if they should pay Larry Johnson that big contract. I told him no. And he said, why? I said, because the day you pay him, he'll never run hard. And uh, they were like, okay. And they paid him anyway. Sure enough, the next day, Larry Johnson showed up to practice in a Maybach with a driver. And went <laughs> And left the driver in the Maybach with the motor running the, the rest of the day. The dude was right in front. And literally, he got in his practice uniform, got there, took the Maybach practice, waited, opened the door, went in. And that fucking Maybach sat in front, and Larry never ran hard again. <laughs> and, like, it was it was unfucking believable And we all knew it because he fucking said it. I was like, we hang out with this guy. Yeah, yeah. And, like, you know, but, like, that's the type of shit where it's, like, you know, but fucking ego is such a dangerous thing, especially when you get in the oh, NFL. And that's why, um, uh, you know, I, I, I can imagine having been an uh, NFL strength coach, it is probably so nice to go back to college and actually deal with non-crazy people. Or less crazy people. Yeah, yeah less, less crazy, younger crazy people. I, you know, again, I, there's, there's aspects of both that I really, really, really enjoy. And, uh, you know, I think we're going kind of staying with the technology. I think what happens is what's going to happen, where we're at now as a, a, a state of the union is, 
players are getting way more educated because of the internet, because of all these things that are out there. And, um, you know, they're, they're wanting this information, but they don't want it to be uh, compromising to their career, you know? And so there's a, there's a, there's a gap in the market in terms of people out there that are being able to get to these players and decipher information, give them actionable Intel that they can make some, some really key uh, changes to their diet, to their training program, to their, uh, recovery program, whatever, uh, that's going to help players out tremendously. And again, it's just the play, the powers in the players. And if they choose to use that and invest in it, um, I think there's, there's a lot of opportunity there for technology to be, uh, uh very useful. Um, it's only going to get more and more, uh, useful. I think as we go. Well, I, we're at that point, man. Yeah, it's I almost mean, two hours of just greatness. No, it's yeah. awesome. Yeah. No, yeah. Well, uh, you know, Ron, why don't you talk a little bit about what goes on on your podcast? So anybody who's listened to this, who's enjoyed it, which hopefully is everybody, because you know, we, I mean, another great guest, man. And uh, uh, where can people find out about you? What, you know, what, what should they do if they want more Ron? Yeah, no, I appreciate that, man. I've really enjoyed this. It's been a lot of fun. The, uh, my podcast, Iron Game Chalk Talk, it, it started when I, when I got let go from Tennessee. I, w- I went around just like we all do. My wife kicked me out because I was driving her nuts. And uh, I was going to different strength coaches and, and just talking shop and got expensive. And, and so I started Skyping people just kind of like this. And, um, you know, somebody suggested somebody came over. And I was talking to a coach we both knew. And he's like, man, this is like an iron. This is like a chop talk, man. You should you should record this. And so for the last three years, I think we're going on 160 plus episodes uh, of where I've just interviewed strength coaches from around the world and uh, really got outside of my comfort zone and really started challenging myself to get to people that I wouldn't normally talk to that have a unique story, unique journey, unique um, aspect of, of the field. Um, and uh, it's been really well received and, and a lot of stuff. You can find that, you know, on, uh, on iTunes, you can uh, go to my website, Um uh, There's information there about the book if you're interested in that as well. And, um, and then I have another podcast called Ask Coach Mac, where it's short five, 10 minute uh, episodes where I just answer different various strength conditioning questions. So um, I'm, 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 out, I'm out there on social media all over the place as well and, and try to be as involved there as I can as well. Ron, do you have any speaking engagements coming up? I've listened to you speak at the CSCCA and Summer Strong. Yeah, yeah. Um, I'm speaking at the NSCA, the National Strength and Conditioning Coaches Association's national conference here pretty soon. Um, speaking in Baltimore, at a smarter team training event, uh, an IYCA event in Kentucky in um, early August, and then Australia uh, in October. Nice. Well, I mean, uh, shit. Ron, you'd be a candidate you know, for a symposium for, you know, depending on how that goes on. Uh, talk to a giant live. So we'll have to be, we'll, we got to reach out. I mean, this was a great show. Like you said, this, I mean, we have another eight hours. We could probably burn it, right? Yeah, it'd be awesome, man. All so right. let's, let's reconnect after this. I'll, I'll reach out to you. But uh, yeah, guys, if, for those of you listening, go check out Ron's stuff. It's, it's good stuff. And especially if you are. Uh, Aspiring or yeah. just put these on our must read list. It's got some solid stuff we got to hear. We've been going through it. So, yeah, that was awesome. Thank you very much. Pleasure. Yes. Thank Thanks, you for guys. making time. Yeah, man, absolutely. Appreciate it. A lot of fun. All right, take care, Ron. Take care. Yeah. See you guys. Bye. Now it's time for you to empower your performance. Start doing your research and scoop Ron McKeefrey's book, CEO Strength Coach ASAP. 
You can find links to purchase as well as Coach Mac's podcast, Iron Game Chalk Talk, on his website, ronmckeefrey.com. Until next time, bye!